This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Hello, hello, family. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Nubians. Episode 96 of In Class with Dr. Gray Carr. Hello there, Dr. Gray Carr. How are you? In Class with Professor Karen Hunter. Fine, fine, beloved. And hello, everyone. This is our live uh, week of the month, huh? Yes, the second uh, Saturday. Uh, and this, uh, I think it's uh, the uh, penultimate last Ooh, the penultimate. So y'all get ready. People get ready. There's a train coming, as Curtis Mayfield would say. Come on, now. Come on. I thought it would be, um, you know, it's it's interesting how, again, my whole perception of, of life and living has changed since um, knowing you. And so a couple of people may transition. And uh, I wanted, you know, and again, social structure versus governance structure, all of that, that framing has completely shifted how I see the world. And it's making it really difficult for me to um, engage in regular dialogue with people. Like if, you, if you're not here to fix this stuff, then uh, I really don't have too much patience or time for you. So like, we're gonna have these conversations. But I, I dug out of the crate, and everyone's talking about Sidney Poitier who made transition yesterday, the age of 94. And it's, you know, the first black man to win an Oscar. And I was like, oh, that's that's cute, that's cute, you know. Uh, but I found an, uh, an interview where, you know, the whole press, they're, they're talking to him because, you know, he's, he's important, you know. And I thought the exchange was interesting. I wanted to get your, your feedback on it. So I'm gonna play it, I'm gonna play it. Ah, excellent. How close has my association been in the past with Dr. King? For some years now, I've worked uh, raising funds for Dr. King because I uh, believe still very strongly in his nonviolent philosophy. What do you feel Ron's purpose is now? I figured that question would come. I am not familiar with all of Mr. Brown's methods, except that Mr. Brown suggests violence. Well, I am as uh, by definition in opposition to violence, particularly violence for violence sake. I would say that the urban riots have had effects in uh, every corner of the country and in every arena of life. Uh, I would like to ask you a question. Why is it that you guys are hounds for bad news? Why is it that, uh, you know, it seems to me that at this moment, this day, you could ask me many questions about many positive and wonderful things that are happening in this country. But we gather here to pay court to sensationalism. We gather here to pay court to negativism you guys have a job to do. Uh, I'm a relatively intelligent man. There are many aspects to my personality that you can explore, I think, uh, very uh, constructively. But you sit here and ask me such one-dimensional questions about a very tiny area of our lives. You ask me questions that fall continually within the Negroness of my life. You ask me questions that pertain to the narrow scope of the summer riots. I am artist, man, American, contemporary. 
I am an awful lot of things, so I wish you would uh, pay me the respect due and not simply ask me about those things. Mm. Uh, thoughts, Dr. Carr, thoughts. <laughs> Why did you play that yesterday and today, Professor oh. Hunter? Mm. Well, a couple of things, you know, Sidney Poitier, uh, as we pay homage to him, uh, as we do in this space, uh, made transition, very complicated man. And I think about all the people who have come to this country in search of, uh, you know, the, the promise um, uh, and, and work through. I mean, he couldn't read, had a very, very thick Bahamian accent that he had to overcome. He was uh, basically told he would not be able to pursue the, the craft that he wanted. And somehow he made himself into uh, something that was not just, you know, the pinnacle of acting, but like white people. I mean, you think about guess who's coming to dinner. Even before that, in the heat of the night where he's in Mississippi and we had this conversation yesterday and shout out to Tanya Pinkins, our sister here. Absolutely. Mother, women of the movement. Lord, yes. have, we're gonna, let's let's table that because I, I, I need to have a conversation about that today as well. But, Good. you know, we think about Sidney Poitier making himself into this person that white people then felt comfortable with and they still didn't see him. And they got frustrated, you know. It's like, wait a minute. First of all, I'm not spoke. What you you just gonna ask me all these questions about racism and you know what about all the other things that I am? But they let him know who he was, and he didn't like it. And I thought it was interesting that um, as long as we are chasing a certain acceptance, we're gonna always be disappointed. We're always gonna they always gonna give us their ass to kiss, and we're always gonna end up feeling some ways about ourselves. As long as we're centering that instead of us. Um, but I think he handled it well. But I don't. I I never seen that clip before, and I was wondering what you thought of it. Well, I think that it is not widely circulated, although it's readily available, and that's something we'll talk about. I think today, in terms of Sidney Poitier's message to us, ironically, from forty years ago, uh, to us today and in the future. I mean, uh, he he saw the possibilities in doing what we're doing right now long before most people of any background did in other words in the rounding creating self-determining ways to communicate and make meaning outside of the studio system that he was in his own words lucky enough to benefit from but then take on that mantle of being that representative Negro with all of its contradictions. And we'll talk about some of that today. So that's number one. It's, it's readily available. The question we can all ask ourselves as we listen to him and look at him there. And it was mislabeled. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, that was actually um, the 22nd of August, 1967. He was in Atlanta. Wait, so wait, you know, wait, you know this? You've, you've seen well, this? Well, only because... Uh, in 2003, 2004, there was a PhD student who defended his dissertation, uh, Adam Gadduzian, who uh, did a dissertation that he turned to a book and published in 2004 entitled Sidney Poitier, Man, Actor, Icon. And he opens the book with that press conference. Um, but, you know, and, and we're not going to spend a lot of time. No, we had no pre-conversation. No, 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 we didn't. Well, you know, Sidney Poitier probably told us what the... 
Okay. All right. Go ahead. You know, the ancestors work. Uh, <laughs> yes. But, uh, but I can understand why I would say 1968 in part because 68 is emblazoned in our minds as the kind of fulcrum, not fulcrum, the inflection point. There's a, there's a book that's just been translated into English, French by Gregor Chamayou called The Ungovernable Society. I just got it the other day. A genealogy of authoritarian liberalism. And I'll just read the blurb from the back. This rebellion was in the air. Workers were on strike. Students were demonstrating on campuses. Discipline was breaking down. No relation of domination was left untouched. The relation between the sexes, the racial order, the hierarchies of class, relationships and families, workplaces and colleges. The upheavals of late 1960s and early 1970s quickly spread through all sectors of social and economic life, threatening to make society ungovernable. This crisis was also the birthplace of the authoritarian liberalism, which continues to cast its shadow across the world in which we now live to ward off the threat. New arts of government were devised by elites in business-related circles, which included a war against the trade unions, the primacy of shareholder value, and a dethroning of politics. The neoliberalism that thus began its triumphal march was not, however, determined by a simple state phobia and a desire to free up the economy from government interference. On the contrary, the strategy for overcoming the crisis of governability consisted in an consisted in an authoritarian liberalism in which the liberalization of society went hand in hand with few with new forms of power imposed from above a strong state for a free economy became the new magic formula of our capitalist societies now what now i'm just going to make the connection between the two things now as we sit here in the wake of january 6 2021 and shout out to all the white nationalists and to the white globalists like steve bannon who have never stopped planning who you know, Bannon, of course, that we talked about last week, uh, put together along with a few other racists that speech, American carnage that Trump gave from the very same Capitol steps that were stormed by his hillbilly horde a year ago uh, this week. Um, who then shortly after um, the uh, or in that same context with the events of Charlottesville, where Heather Heyer was killed and others were harmed and the Unite the Right rally took place, said there are very fine people on both sides. And it was Antifa and Black Lives Matter who helped, you know, continue the genealogy, the unbroken genealogy of white terror in this country. And the United States of America, of course, has demonstrated consistently from its inception as a set of settler colonies into its creation as a settler state that it is not only unwilling to punish white mass violence, it uh, in fact uses white mass violence as a form of control very quote-unquote anti-democratic and i say quote-unquote because i don't even like using the word democracy and shamayu at some point eventually discards the word liberalism but we'll get to that in a minute so you know shout out to them because what happened on january the 6th of course was just the latest iteration of a war a cold civil war as we've been calling it that has hot flare-ups that is leading and will lead to ultimately perhaps a hot one. This is uh, Stephen Marsh's new book, The Next Civil War. He's a Canadian author, very interesting. Uh, and I mentioned this before, and I mentioned that when we were uh, in office hours Monday night in Nubia. And he interviewed 
a couple of hundred uh, policymakers, military leaders, folks in these white nationalist formations, individual white nationalists. He talked to members of uh, um, anarchist groups. He talked to revolutionaries. He talked to Black Lives Matter, formally, organ formal, formally organized Black Lives Matter folk and just regular random folk all over the United States. And his assertion is that what we see right now as we know, Trump is a sim symptom. January 6th is a symptom. But what he's saying, what he says in this book, which kind of connects it to Shamayu's book, is that the only thing that changes in this system is the trigger. But that the ingredients and the structure for the dissolution persist. The crisis is consistent, in other words. And so what he does is he engages in what he calls speculative nonfiction, and he gives five possibilities likely to spark the dissolution. He said it could be a natural disaster. If a category two, and he didn't say if, he says when, because again, he talked to weather folk, weather scientists and, you know, modelers. He said, you know, when a category two or three hurricane hits New York City, they already know which parts of the region will no longer be habitable. He says that would push the government, go, the governmental structure, the social structure, use our language, past a city and regional issue and into a national issue, at which point the underlying crisis of white nationalism and those other interests would reveal themselves when the people say, we're not spending money to help New York. I mean, in other words, it, it's not even the crisis. It's just that there will be a crisis. It could be a natural crisis. It could be an explosion. He said, in fact, let me just let me just read this and I'm going to tie this together and do it in about five minutes because, again, Sydney Poitier, we really haven't left Sydney Poitier. We're going to come right back to that table. He says the technical, this is on page three, the technical definition of a civil war, according to the Center for the Study of Civil War at the Peace Research Institute in Oslo, Norway, is a thousand combatant deaths within a year. The definition of civil strife starts at 25 deaths within a year. So I guess Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, that will be 25, 24, 23, 22. And yeah, people are, you know, it is, it's interesting, isn't it? How the sentencing of the white nationalists that killed Ahmaud Aubrey got a little bit of uh, news, but you know, I mean, it's kind of like a Dan May, right? They were found guilty. What else do y'all want? But anyway, he continues and says, in the United States in 2019, domestic anti-government extremists killed 42 people. In 2018, they killed 53 people. In 2017, 37. In 2016, 72. And in 2015, 70. By this definition, America is already in a state of civil strife on the threshold of civil war. The point is that the January 6th folk who were attempting to forestall a gap in minority rule in this country, which is what they're really working toward. So not just the uh, the rich who took their private planes into town, some of whom have been sentenced to two months in jail and who are laughing it off like, whatever, I'll be out in a minute. Not just the misled hillbillies who showed up toothless, jobless, and hopeless, who thought that they were taking their country back from a person who, if he had his way, all of them would be outside, naked, starving. Uh, but those people were just pawns in a larger game because the Congress people who were coordinating from the inside, the uh, people in the White House bunker who were coordinating, 
uh, the people ignoring the calls for the military and law enforcement, whatever good or not they are in unusual contexts, to deploy uh, officers and troops or whoever to stop this. All that stuff is being coordinated, but not by one or two people. It's being coordinated by an idea and an ideology. And so that eruption on the, on the 6th of January, of course, as we've been saying all along, before that, since that, is that as as marsh is saying it's revealing the system is set up so that this is inevitable it's going to happen it's only a trigger and so they were trying to forestall a temporary suspension of minority rule in other words can we keep this clown in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue so we could continue to do what we all collectively want, even though we'd argue with each other if we all got in the same room, but we kind of have a general ideological thrust of what we want. And the people with the money and the they just want control. They don't give a damn. They've already outsourced most of their stuff. In fact, if you if you look now, I was listening to something the other morning and I was looking at FT and it, it was confirming some of this stuff. You know, the United States of America is not only corporations that are headquartered, domiciled in the United States of America are now not only producing uh, a plurality or majority of their stuff outside the country. They're also selling it outside the country. So the United States is just a place where you put your address. You understand? They don't. They 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 don't look at the United States as a country. It's just a place. So when you see uh, uh, the corn pone, uh, the not the corn pone, the uh, cosplay coal miner in West Virginia, Joe Manchin, he doesn't represent West Virginia. He represents energy, and energy is global. So he don't give a damn about them hillbillies to keep voting for him in West Virginia. Them poor white people, you know, no, 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 no. I don't work for you. I, the people I work for have uh, resources that they are extracting from the earth around the world. West Virginia is where I live. And so all those forces had interests in January 6, 2021, in that moment, that eruption, that, that trigger, which for a moment illuminated the structural uh, the, the scleric nature of this social structure in this country, really in the world, but in this country. And so they were trying to forestall a pause in their plan to make sure they can rule. rule. Now, they weren't able to do it, even though they were poised, that they had not gone in there. They had enough U.S. senators, uh, the white Ted Cruz, white Spanish-speaking Ted, well, not Spanish-speaking, the white Cuban Ted Cruz, uh, young Josh Hawley and all them, they were prepared to join the House of Representatives colleagues, young uh, Cawthorn out of North Carolina, who's a real nut, is a recent article in, New York, in the latest New Yorker on him, uh, uh, T-shirtless Jim, uh, Jim Jordan out of uh, Ohio and all them, they were, they were going to try to over, overturn or not uh, certify the votes without that storm. And they may have interrupted them in doing that. I'm saying I have to say this. I haven't left City Port Day sitting at that table. <laughs> the whole point is that in the wake of the 6th of January 2021, they have continued not being able to interrupt it. They're going to bring that beat back. It could be Donald Trump. It could be the corn pone fascist governor of Florida, who from everyone who has ears and eyes, seems to me that he's been sick with something, perhaps COVID from how he was wheezing and breathing after hiding for two weeks in his press conference earlier this week. But it really doesn't matter who the individual is. 
The individual is just the trigger. The, 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 the systemic nature of what's going on, according to Stephen Marsh and anybody really paying attention, is that it's headed to this direction. They're going for minority rule. So they'll just come back. So even though they were beat back a little bit on the 6th of January and people start, you know, commemoration. What is a commemoration? Wait, y'all have already relegated this to the solemn nature of commemoration? And you let Dick Cheney, a war criminal, walk around in the Capitol with his uh, daughter, who you now call a hero because she has the sense to understand that if they destroy the United States, she's going to be out of a job too. And then on the outside steps, Ashley Babbitt, the, the lady who got killed, her mother, her literal, her blood mother was out on the steps of the Capitol. Same time they down there with this thing in the Capitol Rotunda. She outside talking about my daughter just was exercising her First Amendment rights. She shouldn't have died. And all this is going on at the same time. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and that blockhead Matt Getz was on Steve Bannon's podcast at the same time talking to the world that this ain't over and people talking about they're going to hang the traitors and when they take power again. 2022, forget, forget Game of Thrones. Winter is coming. Winter never left. As Gil Scott Heron said, it's winter in America. It's winter in America. And they are already planned out 2022 midterm elections in 2024. We've been saying it all along. That's what CRT is. CRT, do a, do a simple algebraic equation. CRT equals 2022. CRT equals 2024. CRT equals 2020. That's how they won the election in Virginia. 31 now, insurrectionists are running for office in 2020. 31 people who... That's something. You know, it's so funny you say that, friend, my friend uh, Addison Francois, who's a law professor over at Georgetown, my former colleague at, at Howard University, good brother, Haitian-American, New Yorker, love that brother, brilliant, brilliant brother. He's he's doing some work. Uh, he's been working the last couple of years in the 19th century, studying and, and looking at comparatively Reconstruction, which is, as I always say, I think is the most important period in U.S. history for the social structure. Alternatively, I think perhaps a rival to it for governance conversations for me is the black power era again i'm left sydney portier we come in we ain't left them we're gonna tie this together in a sec the the thing that uh the addison is writing about he's talking about he said this the other day he said um you know it looks like they're a bunch of idiots running for elective office and they're in congress he said i won't speak much about the nature of the politicians today but i will say having spent a great deal of time over these last couple of years in the 19th century that the United States of America, you must always remember, the United States has always elected idiots to Congress. <laughs> he said, the more I study, the more I realize that there were some real idiots in the United States Congress. Now, you can't put that on Black people, although we are trying to catch up. But, you know, because I think it's one thing integration does, right? It begins to knock the foundation out of the things that you know to be good from your own foundations. And in fact, Sidney Poitier says that at the end of the uh, autobiography that we're going to use as the platform to talk about him, we're going to let him talk about himself. But it's not a recent autobiography. That's why I say 40 years ago, near the end of it, he's in Bahamas. He's built a house there. Um, he's married his second wife, the white woman that drives so many of us crazy. And he's going to talk about that, too. We're going to talk about that, too, that nine year uh, relationship he had with uh, Diane Carroll. I mean, you talk about it. And of course, she wrote her own memoir, Diane mm -hmm. Carroll, The Legs of the First to Go. Have you interviewed? Have you talked to Diane Carroll? Ever. And, it's you know, and I wanted to talk with Sidney Poitier. You know, I have this list of people, as I mentioned, that I wanted to sit with. Um, but I'm almost glad that I didn't because I didn't have the bandwidth that I have now. You know what I'm saying? Like to to 
And I, again, I think I would ask valuable questions. Yeah. But now, now, thank and thank you for that. No, no, I think you, I, questioning would be. I, yeah, you, you'd ask different questions. Yeah, I expect, but you'd also ask the same. I think the the moral, the character, the personality bandwidth always there. So if you would have elicited, and then okay. now could look. But either way, it's a right, no, no, right. Somebody just sent me a clip from twenty years ago. I was on the radio, uh, and it was a caller. He had taped the show because he called up, and he sent it to me. And guess what I was talking about? The lack of critical thinking in this country, how we are teaching people how to, you know, suss out both sides and be able to come to conclusions on their own, how the media is feeding. And I was uh, on the radio at the time with this guy named Steve Malsberg, who was a disciple of Bob Grant, who was a very despicable, horrible human being to sit with every morning. Um, and, uh, you know, it was interesting that a black owned station would put that man on those airwaves with me, uh, trying to put me in my place. And uh, by the end of it, I had him drinking Maalox and he, and he got fired. But <laughs> once I realized, you know, but, but, but you're right, you know that. But, I, but what I'm saying is because of you, I know so much more uh, in terms of what we should be extracting from these folk. And, and also how to expose who's really, you know, about this life. And I think that that's important, too, because I think we get enamored with people and we like to put them on pedestals without having them show and prove that they really are. You know, and maybe they're evolving too. And we need to see that process. And I was wrong. Mm. It's 57 people from January 6th. And I'm going to drop the link in Nubia so that people can read the story. Oh, thank you. 57. 57. Wow. 57 documented. But I'm glad he taped that. And I'm glad you were able to hear that. And you can see the consistency because that is the posture we have to have. That's that ways of knowing we have to have. That critical, that capacity to have a critical lens. And that is something that Sidney Poitier demonstrated as well. I think a conversation between you all would have been very interesting um, because in, in the book that we're going to use, rely on for some of this conversation today is 1980 autobiography, This Life, 40 years ago. Poitier is unvarnished in a way, candid in a way, and he thinks he dedicates, well, one of the people he dedicates, but really it's the person he really dedicates it to in some of it, is Alex Haley, of all people. He says, thank you, Alex. It's 1980. So Haley, of course, is hot. You know, the decade of the 70s was his decade, really the second half. Wrote Roots, you know, the autobiography of Malcolm X, ghost writers, co-writer, really, some people say alterer. But, you know, by 1975, 76, the book, then the movie Roots, Haley is at the apex of his notoriety, his fame, and and and, and Sidney Poitier says, Alex Haley kept bothering me, kept bothering me, and he writes, Sidney Poitier writes beautifully. If you get a chance to read his memoir, This Life, you will see it, and he, I think, it would have been an interesting conversation to hear between the two of you all, because I think you would have probably very quickly, as you do, get past any particular moment in life except to use the example and get to the underlying themes of a life and i think the same with diane carroll and the reason i mention her is because again there are moments in city Portier's life as we see how the social structure is canonizing him he has been canonized of course uh we'll talk about some of those obituaries and in fact we might as well get that out of the way you know it's rare that the uk paper puts a negro on the front page the city Portier on not only made the front page of today's ft weekend he's above and below the fold <laughs> there he is the defiant one 
they went, they wrote, they reached back to Tony Curtis. <laughs> and I love how the social structure defiant. Who what is he defying? Oh, the social structure. Everything is in relation to you, which actually read uh goes back to uh Gaduzian's uh opening where he talks about that August press conference in Atlanta, which we're gonna talk about in a second. But he he ends his preface, he begins the preface with Portier's press conference, the clip from which we saw, and then he ends the he ends the, the last paragraph in his preface after he walks through what Portier is trying to accomplish and not in his estimation. He says, but it really comes down. He didn't say it really comes down to, but he, this is really what the thrust of it. He says, that press conference is an example of what W.E.B. Du Bois was saying in The Souls of Black Folk. Uh, when he says, you know, white people approach me and they say stuff like, I knew a fine colored man in my town or my father fought in Mechanicsville, fought in the Civil War. He said, but the real thing they want to say, the real question they want to ask, they really don't ask. And that question is, uh, how does it feel to be a prop? That's really what them white boys was asking Sidney Poitier. And he got to tell, how does it feel to be a problem? And then Poitier was like, I have a question to ask you. At that moment, he, like you said, the social structure has him on that same platform they have had him on for many of the 40 films that he made, many of the nine uh, films he directed, the stage plays, many of them, of course, this is back in time. This is 68, not 2022, but I'm going to talk about that too in a second in passing as a footnote. Poitier, at that moment, as you say, he stands in the governance structure. Why don't y'all come over here with me? But when he says, I have a question to ask you, you can hear a pin drop. What? No, nigga, I'm the one to ask questions. How does it feel to be a problem? Sidney Poitier, in saying, I got a question to ask you, says, I'm not a problem. Oh, I guess I'm out of questions then. Right. Yeah, the questions. And what I was about to say parenthetically is the reason why I think his 1980 book is, is really critical for understanding. And he wrote two more. He wrote a letter to his granddaughters. Uh, between that, he did Measure of a Man. Uh, in fact, I, I want to say it. I had to ask my sister and brother-in-law to be sure because my mother, who's 93, like her generation, you know, they all love, City Portier was their imaginary boyfriend. So uh, it may have been for a signing for, for that that my mother met Sydney Portier. I'll never forget when they sent me the pictures. She just beaming. I said, of course you are. And uh, they gave Harry Belafonte an honorary degree at Fisk. And she stepped out in the middle of the damn uh, procession. It's like, give mother a hug. <laughs> so you can't, you, <laughs> but you got to do that. So these black women don't play <laughs> with Sydney Portier and, and, and Harry Belafonte. So, you know, I almost scored the double, the double duty on that one. But my point is that he, he wrote subsequent memoirs, but the 1980 book, and we'll, I think we'll see in a moment why. I think it's, it gives us an opening to help us understand what we just all viewed in that press conference. And the thing I was going to add was that Sidney Poitier was for all intents and purposes, he's for all intents and purposes been retired for 20 years. So, you know, although he worked after 2000, really 2000, you see him kind of moving to. And really, he talks about this in, in this life, which is fascinating to me. After he makes those films with um, with Bill Cosby and Harry Belafonte, the trifecta, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these, uh, as you say, a lot of these newspapers. I mean, where's my New York Times? Here's today's Times. Let me see here if I got it. Yeah, yeah here it is. The um, they're going to talk about, of course, so the defiant ones. They're going to talk about. Uh, guess who's coming to? dinner they're not gonna they're gonna talk about their trifecta might be 
um, um, in the heat of the night. And uh, they called me Mr. Tibbs and the organization, which was the third in that trilogy. But the trilogy for black people going to be Uptown Saturday Night, Let's Do It Again, and a piece of the action. Come on. <laughs> I mean, so oh, you see the difference between the government instruction and, the, and, that, and that's preceded by Buck and the Preach. I mean, all these stories that, but it was interesting because Portier in many ways in those films, which he, which they form a company, as you know, corporation actually, United Artists. Uh, he forms a company with Barbara Streisand, uh, Paul Newman, uh, who were the other two, Steve McQueen, and Cindy Portier, the three of them. No, it wasn't United Artists, called First Artists. First Artists. And here was the deal they made. This is like, I forget, maybe 1972, 73. They said, they can make a they must they have to commit to making a minimum of three films in six years and none of the films can go over three million dollars in a budget but in exchange they can make any movie they want they have complete artistic control and it, and this was just as he had been roasted he Sidney Poitier was getting roasted by black people uh he made a movie called uh, the lost man which I kind of like the beginning it's set in Philly. Uh, the Lost Man was a film he made. And in fact, there's a very good book if you can get your hands on it. Again, it's interesting about Sidney Poitier, right? I mean, we see the wall-to-wall coverage and it's like he's frozen. He's frozen in the 1950s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Not even the 1970s because for white people, Sidney Poitier doesn't exist really into the 1970s. Sidney Poitier is singing with the nuns. <laughs> in a in a very low budget movie that he basically took a pay cut at that time, City Portier was making between a, like 130 150,000 a year, and they gave him a quarter million dollars to make uh the film he won the Academy Award for. And he told them, Well, if I take if I take this job for that low amount of money, twenty thousand, twenty-five thousand dollars, that's gonna mess up my ability to earn. Going forward, he's a black man in Hollywood. He's the only one. So if I if I I can make one hundred fifty thousand, I'm gonna let y'all charge me twenty five. I'm gonna charge y'all twenty five. So his agent told him, "Look, this is what you do. You tell them you'll take twenty five to thirty, and ten percent of the profits. And then, of course, the movie wins the Academy Award for Best Actor. But when he goes into business with these other three on itself, now mind you, this ain't. I mean, this is Barbara Streisand, this is Steve McQueen, and Paul Newman." by the way. Interestingly enough, uh, well, I, I, I'll come back to that. But the point is this. He's getting roasted. He made this film called A Lost Man. And the reason I kind of like because Quincy Jones scored The Lost Man. And so when you see the beginning of the film, The Lost Man, and in fact, like I said, the book I was going to tell you all about, this is um, Lester Kaiser and Andre Ruskowski's book, The Cinema of Sidney Poitier. It's a little kind of throwaway book, A.S. Barnes Company. They interviewed Sidney Poitier. They interviewed a lot of his friends. The thing I like about these books in favor uh, uh, over some of the more recent books where scholars, you know, scholars love talking, going to the archives. And scholars should go to the archives. I go to the archives. It's great. But it's nothing like books that are written when a lot of the people who know the people you're writing about are alive and you interviewed them. So he, this, these cats interviewed a whole lot of people. And so... Um, the Lost Man, let me see, page 122. I don't know if they got a still. I'm sure they got a still in here. Yeah, this is in the sex section they call, he calls, they call response to public challenge. He's getting roasted by black people too. Now, mind you, he's trying. Sidney Poitier 
never doesn't try because this thing is on tape roles they're going to mean black people. He turned down many roles. In fact, he took the role in the film Porgy and Bess because Otto Primogen kind of boxed him out of some other roles. And he told Harry Belafonte, and Belafonte was like, man, I like to think that I uh, would have had the strength not to, to do that. <laughs> so, and, and Portier said to he made transition, at least his public statements, he regret taking that role. But I'm saying that to say that when he got a little sliver there, he did try to do other things. Remember, and I know you remember this, and there's some young people who won't know anything about this, but one thing I hope you are doing is we're watching and have a conversation today. And also as you watch this later, have you have your young people in particular or yourself, if you've never seen a film called For Love of Ivy mm. with Abby Lincoln. Yes. Sydney Poitier is trying to put black relationships in Hollywood. You understand? It's not that black people weren't making films. Hell, we've been making films since they had film. You go back and look at Oscar Michaud, you look at the link. I mean, we've been doing it, but this guy has access to the box office. So I'm going to put black love on the screen. He did one called A Warm December. That was the first movie he made with this company that they had, but it didn't make no money. It was a Jamaican sister who was the, uh, uh, Esther Anderson played the love interest. They shot it in London. And then, remember in Uptown Saturday Night, his wife was Rosalind Cash. Right. You know what I'm saying? And of course, let's do it again. You got the great uh, Lee Christensen, which a lot of people don't remember her, not Lee Christensen, Lee Chamberlain. And so it had the gap in her teeth. So, I mean, he's trying to put this love on the screen, but I'm saying that to say that when he made The Lost Man, he, let me see, here we go, 1920, let me say page 122, The Lost Man was he was deep in that relationship with with uh Diane Carroll. Let me see here. Uh 1967? Was it 1967? Oh, it might have been. Yeah, that would be the thing. The reason I like the Lost Man, really the music. At the beginning of the Lost Man, when you see the entrance and left, it's like you hear these children. It's like uh the you know black children uh doing like a nursery rhyme in a game they're like and then quincy jones puts these chords under it and as the children are chanting the music you hear the chords come in and turn the whole thing ominous so while they're chanting you hear it's like wait where's this going and it just turns, it goes all the way left into this. Oh, this is some spooky shit. It's set in Philly. It's a black militant that's going to blow up these banks and all this kind of thing. And they had this whole struggle of which way the black revolution should go. It's called a lost man. But that's the set where he met his wife. <laughs> the, the, the white girl, I believe, if, that, if memory serves me correctly. But we'll, we'll get to that. The point I'm trying to make is that he was, this is interesting why this, this little section here is called Response to Public Challenge. There was a dude, a black dude named Clifford Mason who wrote a critique of uh, Sidney Poitier in the New York Times. Ooh, he blistered him. Larry Neal, some of y'all know the name Larry Neal. Larry Neal was one of the great intellectuals, artists of the Black Arts Movement. As I said, Reconstruction is probably the most important period in the governance, uh, social structure history of this country. And it's very important in the governance structure of African people in this settler state. At the same time, I think a, a rival for it could be and I think in some ways closer in time, it's closer in time, it might even be more important in some ways culturally, was the Black Arts Movement, the Black Power Movement, the Black Studies Movement. That movement 
which took place from really the early 60s through the 1970s. And that is how you see Sidney Poitier at the height of his power confronting in the governance structure the critiques and Larry Neal, one of the central figures in the Black Arts Movement, he and Amiri Baraka, his very dear friend Amiri Baraka, wrote, uh, edited uh, the, the anthology Black Fire that's now published by Black Classic Press. And Larry Neal's from Philly. Larry Neal saw City Poitier after the Lost Man came out. He said, I, I saw the Lost Man. He said, you heading for big trouble. Black people ain't gonna like that movie. They're not gonna like that picture. <laughs> and Sidney Poitier's ears perked up. He writes about this in this life in his memoir. And then he says, Clifford Mason, this other dude, September the 10th, 1967, writes, wait, 1967, press conference in Atlanta was August 1967. The New York Times article by Clifford Mason was September. Within about a month, we, we ain't left that table yet. We come to that table. Clifford Mason writes an article in the New York Times called, quote, why do white people love Sidney Poitier so much? <laughs> Question mark. Now, mind you, the social structure, white-facing, uh, white-stream media, it's not mainstream. This is mainstream, what we're doing right now. But for us, the New York Times give you real estate to attack Sidney Poitier because they ain't got no love for nobody, which is the point Sidney Poitier makes in his, in his memoir, This Life. He says, you know, all these movies that we call black exploitation, those movies came out because white people realized they could make some money across the street. They didn't give a damn about the stories. And he said, now that I had formed this company, now that I had formed this company, I had the creative license to do some things, to do anything I wanted. And I was getting slammed from some of these black folk. He said, I looked at these black exploitation movies and it was so funny because he said, I was on a plane one time. I was feeling down. And the thing I love about this book is Poitier be roasting himself. When I tell you, we're going to talk a little bit about this. I'm going to pause. I, I, I want to, since we opened with that table and him making that statement, I want to give the context that we come with, we have left the table. He, he's very self-critical. And so he said, I didn't like Clifford Mason. He wrote that article. And I was like, where is he? I went looking for him. I couldn't find anything about him. Then I went to, he said, you went to Olatunji, Michael Olatunji, known at the time, Babatunde Olatunji, the Nigerian drummer, artist, musician, Morehouse, went to Morehouse and released in 1960, the album Drums of Passion. He put, uh, he was performing at a fundraiser in New York and Poitier says, I'm in there and Mason is there. I'm sitting next to Mason and Mason is like, I don't know what he looked like though. Mason's like, you know me? He said, no. He said, I'm Mason. He was like, oh, okay. He said, then Mason's like, did you read my article? <laughs> Trigger warning, children, put your fingers in your ears. Sidney Poitier writes in this life. He said, I wanted to say, yeah, motherfucker. <laughs> but what I said was, yes. It's classic Sidney Poitier, <laughs> right? I mean, he says, so he didn't get the reaction. He said, I would not give him the satisfaction of the reaction, but clearly it stung him because he was like, man. So what does he do? He makes a warm December, doesn't make any money. He calls his friend. No, no, no. He didn't call his friend. His friend, Harry Belafonte, called him and says, uh, hey, man, did you hear this one about? He started telling him a joke. That was uh, that was Harry Belafonte's way of, a, I don't want to say apologizing because Poitier doesn't say apologizing. I'm going to put words in the ancestor's mouth. 
it was a way of reopening a friendship that had been damaged. They hadn't spoken in two years. That was 1970. Why? Because in 1968, when Dr. King was killed, Belafonte, of course, was at the center of organizing the funeral, getting things together. Portier flew down and they were in a meeting and they were de deciding, uh, Belafonte had raised this idea, should we have the rally, the public rally about King's life and the mission and the movement the day of the funeral, after a funeral, or the day before? What do you think? And so there, everybody's going around. Partier said, I don't think we should have a, a rally at all. We're here to honor this man and to bury him. And Partier says, writes, that Julie Belafonte, Harry Belafonte's wife, excoriated Portier in the meeting. You know, what are you talking about? This is important. This is and at that moment, Portier realized, I should have handled that differently. Because he said, I was close to Martin Luther King coming to that press conference. I was close to Martin Luther King. Portier says this. He says, but Belafonte and King were like brothers. He said, I really didn't even, I didn't want that kind of relationship with Martin Luther King. And I couldn't have had it even if I tried because I didn't, I wouldn't want people to think I was competing with uh with Harry for with Mr. B as he calls him sometime or Harry back and forth and, and more for his affection. But more importantly, the two of them had an energy and a and a person that they just synced. And then you just that's just not you know, it wasn't me. And so he said, but I realized in that moment, this was not just personal for him. He was in great pain. And he said, had that just been the two of us? He he would normally, if he's real close with you, and this other thing he says about how Belafonte, he said, before any of you all believe that I'm just venerating him and he's a wonderful 100% guy, because I know none of y'all believe that about any human being, including myself. He said, let me tell you, Harry Belafonte will cut you in up around and sideways if he <laughs> he said he said but if he with you if he's your friend friend he's your friend thick and thin for, and he's got he's got all these stories in there about him belafonte including one i'm gonna talk about when they landed in jacks mississippi and went to greenwood and so the carmichael picked them up and took them through and they were strapped with guns because they brought like seventy thousand dollars down there for the snick kids which is why i'm going i ain't left that table believe me so the point is that he says because it was public and because Julie jumped out like that and left him no place to hide, he couldn't really see really say nothing. He said, but we didn't talk for two years after that. They didn't have the rally. They won't put in the stadium. No, we're not going to do that. He said, I felt then about the way I feel now. We shouldn't have done it. We didn't do it. But it was a better way to handle that. And and I realized after the thing blew up, they, uh, they didn't talk two years. And then two years later, Belafonte calls Portier and says, he he said, he hey, man, what's going on? What's going on? Yeah. Did you hear this joke about these? He's a joke. Okay. And they picked up like they had never had that argument. But then he says, I got this script. And I want to see this thing done. You could be a co-producer with me on this. Or if you don't want to be a co-producer, you can just produce it. If you think it's worth working on, because I think this story needs to be told, was Bucking the Preacher. And that one, and that film was made at that uh first artist because he could make any kind of film he wanted. Now, mind you, this isn't this is interesting. Uh Belfonte writes, Hollywood hadn't hadn't done no love stories for black people, Hollywood, box office. That's why I did a warm December, but it didn't make no money. He said, so it was a problem. So I told them we was going to do Buck and the Preacher. It's a whole story behind Buck and the Preacher. But they get the thing done. And he says, when I finish it, I think he told them 
Oh, no, he said it, that one struggled to break even initially. So now they real wary of me. But it's but I'm but I'm an investor and I'm one of the partners. And I ain't got to ask them shit. I just all I got to make sure is my movies don't come in at over three million dollars. So the next one I said, we already do this for real, mind you. He said, I was still kind of wary. I I had been burned. I I went into exile a little bit after I was got critiqued. He was very sensitive about this. I mean, there was a point where Ozzy Davis. Remember, Ozzy Davis directed Cotton Comes to Harlem which is out of Chester Himes, the great uh, fiction writer. My, my dear friend and brother Larry Jackson has written a wonderful biography of Chester Himes. Uh, remarkable piece of work, quite frankly. But Chester Himes, you should read Chester Himes if y'all not aware of Chester Himes. But when you see Cotton Comes to Harlem, Gravedigger Jones, Coffin Ed, that whole thing, Donnie Hathaway, Come Back, Charleston Blue, the next movie, you know, when, which went one of the great soundtrack songs. I mean, if they were given, we should just give our own statues. Don't be trying to submit. Because anytime you hear Donnie Hathaway come in, I'm back from Carolina, coming on through, and all I want to hear is come back, Charleston Blue. I mean, that that song, and it's a duet. Do you hear this? Well, by blue, you left us in your prime. Oh, I can't even hit that note. You left us. You know, I had to go down the octave. You left us in your prime, but people still remember you, a legend in your time. And you hear that, and then they, and then they start doing the harmony. You know, I'm like, man, come black Charleston Blue, which is hilarious. I don't know if you. I don't. You do you remember you the opening scene? The, the dude got the nun habit on, and he's on the bike. Oh, I vaguely remember it. I do remember Cotton Comes to Harlem. That's Godfrey Cambridge, right? Yes, Godfrey Cambridge, one who, of course, gone too soon. Had Godfrey Cambridge lived, I think it's a very different genealogy of black comedy we're talking about. Mm. A very different, another son of the Caribbean, which is one of the reasons why Belafonte said him, him uh, um, Sidney Poitier said him and Belafonte could fall out and ain't neither one gonna call the other. He said, We two West Indians, we just not gonna, you know, he Jamaican, I'm Barbadian, we ain't gonna, we ain't calling that dude. Everybody tell you, you should talk. No, nah, I ain't calling that dude, that dude need to call me, that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, Godfrey Cambridge, if Godfrey Cambridge had lived, of course, Watermelon Man, Cotton Comes to Harlem, then come back Charleston Blue, these are Chester Himes, uh, you know, and, and, and so he says, Ozzie Davis directed Cotton Comes to Harlem. And Partier said, you know, I kind of went into retirement for a year after I got blistered. And I didn't even go on the set of Cotton Comes to Harlem, even though Ozzie Davis hired all these people that we all, all these people in that film, we came up with. These are the people I trained with. These are the people I acted with. And I think about that because when he had the chance to make his own films with his own creative complete creative control. I mean, there's one, there are many figures, but uh, of the elders, you know, who's left to walk us through that uh, trilogy? There's 40th Street Mac, the great John Amos, Brick City, Newark. Uh, Calvin Lockhart's gone, but young people who would not recognize the name City Poitier or maybe not seen any of his films, they all know the notorious B.I.G., who I believe had to change his name because initially he came out as Biggie Smalls and it was like, nah, you better, we got that trademark. Who got your uh Portier? Calvin Lockhart was Biggie Smalls That's in fine. Let's Do It Again. <laughs> no, no, no. 
Yeah, let's do it again. Yeah, Uptown Saturday Night was Madame Zenobius. He played the robber. Never have so many helped so few. So done so much for so few. <laughs> but anyway, the um the point I'm trying to make is he said, I didn't even go on that set. I didn't even go on that set, even though a lot of those actors, a lot of people, those are the people I came up with. Because these are stage actors now making movies. And that's the reason I said John Amos, of course. But the person I think of, of course, who would be a person, I don't know if you ever talked to him or not. And this would be, I don't, I think he's probably now just, you know, surrounded by his family and people kind of, you know, although this Negro is known to show up in a film doing a cameo. I'm like, how did this guy, you know what I'm talking about? James Earl Jones. <laughs> Remember James Earl Jones was in a piece of the action because he was the, the law enforcement guy that forced Cosby and Poitier to do the kind of teaching in the community center with those black kids as kind of a public service to keep them from going to jail. And of course, one of those young people was Shirley Ralph. So wow. I, mean, I just think, what do you say? I said, wow. Yeah, I mean, you just remember, I mean, but, but James Earl Jones still around. And the reason I, the reason I mentioned that is because of course, parenthetically, Robert Earl Jones, his father was in the sting. But, you know, Robert Earl Jones is another generation of, of, of actors, you know, the pre the generation preceding them. But uh, and parenthetically, we should probably acknowledge the uh, transition, of course, of Goldie from the Mac. <laughs> I know y'all talked about <laughs> I know y'all talked about him. So Max Julian, the great Max Julian. But Portier said, I'm not even I didn't even go up there. It wasn't he was shamed. It was a, he was just he was hurt. Because I'm not doing, I'm not, I've not done what I, he, he says this in his book. I was lucky and I tried to represent the race and I turned down pieces. And we're going to talk more about that in a second. But anyway, this is the period though that Gregor Chamayu is writing about the ungovernable society, which is one reason why I think they may have mislabeled that 1968 because 1968 is a year that is seen as a global a year for global student rebellion, global revolutionary action, global rebellion, the student protests and, and activity in France, the stuff going on in the United States, the long hot summers of 65, 66, 67, 64, you know, the, 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 the burnings of the, you know, everything is going on there. Dr. King, of course, assassinated in, in April 1968, Bobby Kennedy, June 1968, so forth and so on. So, I mean, I could see them labeling that because the fire that Poitier has there is clearly a 1968 energy. But what happens from 1968 forward, from the 60s forward, what you was arguing is that this social structure resets itself. And so by emphasizing personal freedoms and emphasizing economic opportunity, while increasing the emphasis on shareholder value. Now companies, you know, Apple just announced they're the first $3 trillion company. Shareholder value trumps everything. And Apple, well, that's a good American company, really. All their stuff comes from somewhere else and they selling most of their stuff somewhere else. The United States is just a, is damn a, a, a post office address. <laughs> Do you understand? So the laws must always facilitate them not taking that post office address and dropping it in London or Delhi. So if you want to know why you can't get no legislation passed, it's because enough of y'all don't go out there and vote to bust the system wide open. But in the ungovernable society, that one of the reasons you don't go out there and vote is because between the disinformation that's flooding and the apathy that's flooding and every app in the world and all the damn white noise that's going on and all of the entertaining stuff that they stick in your face to distract you from the fact that they stealing with both hands, you didn't even go out there and put enough people in the legislature to break their backs. And they're counting on that. Even as the people who still believe this is a country who ain't got nothing but their whiteness to look at are organizing to make sure that this becomes a version of Rhodesia. 
But at any rate, so it may be mislabeled 68 because this is kind of one of the things that Gregor says uh, that Shamayu says is a trigger for that that response, that ungovernable, that, that, that response that he calls authoritarian liberalism. But Portier sitting at that table is not in 1968, he's in 1967. And it's very interesting because he is giving a press conference in Atlanta. That's where, that that's where he sit at that table. The week before, he had been the keynote speaker at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, 10th anniversary. Because again, him and King were, were close and he raised money. We're going to talk about that in a minute as well. And But by August 67, Newark had gone up in flames. Detroit had gone up in flames. And of course, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Hubert Brown, Rap Brown, has said, let it burn. I don't give a damn. That's why he asked him about Rap Brown. And so... You know, in fact, I think, what was it? Um, what was it Rap Brown said? You can't love them to death. You got to shoot them to death. <laughs> and so and so, the Atlanta conference that he had spoken at the week before was the title of the conference, the theme of the SCLC summit was also co coincidentally, not coincidence at all, the title of one of Dr. King's books, Where Do We Go From Here? It were 2,000 people at that opening banquet, according to uh, Adam uh, Gadusian's book. And he talks about this and he says to them, I'm an artist, man, American, contemporary. He had said that at the banquet. So when he comes in now, he telling these white boys what he had already said the week before, literally a week before. And he's saying it at a moment in American and world, in US and world history, when he who came out of apartheid who came out of U.S. apartheid, who left, as we know, as he says, he left. In fact, the first, uh, the first, man, he sent me digging. I had to go get the book. I had, it, I had a couple copies, but I think I was worried that they were both in storage, uh, this life. Um, St. Cat Island in the Bahamas, you know, 14 years old, and his mom and them like, you can't, you got to go. So they sent him to his brother Cyril in Miami. He was born in Miami. On one of the trips, as we know, his parents made up here, his family did, because they, they they farmed tomatoes. They eked out a living in the Bahamas. And so they uh he was they were here when she gave birth. And so that's you know, that's why but you know he, he said, I'm an American. Yeah, I was I'm an American citizen, I was born here, but I was raised at home in the Bahamas. They took me back, and then I was getting a little bit, I dropped out of school, 14 years old. Okay, we're gonna send you to your brother. He was there working in Miami for a minute. Didn't stay there but a hot minute. And got took three dollars and, and showed up in New York City at fifteen years old with three dollars. High school dropout, working odd jobs, dishwashers. Where he gets in the army. Join, he lies about his age. Sixteen years old joins the army. There's a steady. There's a steady job. He work, works as an orderly. He works as an orderly, which is interesting because the first film he makes is No Way Out, where he plays a doctor. Okay, and this one thing Portier was very clean about. I'm not playing. In fact, I forget what was the phrase he uses in this life. He says, I will not play roles that are indistinguishable from any other regular role that you would put black people in. Well, there's a dishwasher. I'm not playing that role. I wash dishes. I mean, <laughs> Portier is an interesting guy. That just reminds me. I mean, anyway. Yeah, near the end of the book, I mentioned near the end of the book, a, a young sister comes to him for advice. She wants to be an actress. She says, I'm going to start acting classes, drama classes. He said, hmm. He said, what skills do you have? She said, what do you mean? 
said, if you went out of here today, could you get a job washing dishes? She said, yeah. Could you get a job in a restaurant? He said, she said, yeah. He said, let me tell you something. You might not be able to get a job washing dishes. You might not be able to get a job in a restaurant because those are the jobs that people who haven't acquired other skills go for. And there may be 900 applicants for that job. You may not get that job because you're indistinguishable from these other people. He said, now, I'm not going to discourage you because God knows I scrapped. But here's the thing. You shouldn't have your parents and your families going into debt, working overtime to send you for drama classes that don't turn into a job because now you just took drama classes. Why, you would be better off as a late teen getting a two-year degree, you know, be, it's, get skills as a secretary or get skills in an office or get, get skills that will allow you to have a job that would pay you a lot more than washing dishes or working in a restaurant. And then you take the acting classes in the daytime and you work at night or nighttime and you work in the daytime, whatever. And then you have, the, and now you can move forward. He said, but you know, this pursuing a dream, you black. He's not talking about, I told my daughters the same thing. If that's one of the reasons he and his first wife were neither, they had a divergence. He said, I ran my household very strictly. Point is, I ran my, my household very strictly. He said, because, you know, I said they have to be self-sufficient because that's how we were trained when he was the youngest of nine as we know and his father you know was not really the disciplinarian in the way that his mother was and so interestingly enough he says that was a source of tension as we grew apart he said i loved when he said one in fact i i, I should <laughs> i should read that verbatim yes i should read that verbatim but and i think i could paraphrase it enough his first wife juanita uh, Mar uh, marie hardy who i believe handy no hardy hardy who I believe is still alive. She was at his 90th birthday party. There's a, there's a picture floating out there with him, his children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. They're all in the same room, and she's in the picture. And he and he thanks her throughout the, the, uh, the, the book, throughout his memoir and his other writings. And then toward the end, he said, had she been more urbane and sophisticated, she she wouldn't have had nothing to do with me. She shouldn't have had anything to do with me. She almost probably wished she hadn't met me. She took me in. He said, she was too trusting. Her people from Alabama, you know, <laughs> said, you know, I, I was selfish. I didn't know, but I loved her. And she made community and made family for any and everybody all the time. And she said, but, but anyway, I'm saying I have to say that you know, he was hard on his daughters in a way because he's like, yeah, y'all got to because they had, you know, he, he ended up with six children. I think they had three or four, maybe four. And so all girls, he said, I, you know, you got to, you got to work for it and you got to be smart about this. So anyway, we know that he did. I mean, that he, he didn't necessarily follow his own. He's talking from experience, right? And then by 18, he's discharged from the army. And that's, of course, what we know is he goes to the American Negro Theater, Frederick O'Neill, uh, one of the founders, you know, puts him out, said, dude, you can't even hear this accent and you can't read. He improved his reading skills while working these odd jobs. People would help him. There was a guy who washed dishes with him, an older guy who helped him get his reading stuff up. He bought a little radio. He started working on his accent, you know, machining it a little bit. And of course, he always had that accent. They call me Mr. Tabs. Like it's there, it's there. The way he spoke was there. It's very you can see him being a subject of the crown, so to speak. But um, he ends up then at 19, 
And, well, they let him take acting lessons at American Negro Theater in exchange for him doing custodial services. And then that's when he met Harry Belafonte. Two of them become very good friends. Belafonte had a young family. And Cindy Portier writes, I knew that there were times when he could not be present for rehearsals. So I was always there. And that's how he got, he, so he became Belafonte's understudy for plays. And that's how he got his break when Belafonte couldn't come and he got on stage in the Greeks. I went to HBCU and I was a drama. I was a theater major. And let me tell you about HBCU schizophrenia. <laughs> I mean, at least when I was coming along and really up until now, because I think how I see Howard still does, you know, among others. They always going to do when them, they're going to do a Greek play. They're going to do uh, some medieval plays. They're going to do Shakespeare, the HBCUs, because that's how you showed you had chops. You know, in my four years at, in fact, the first role I played at Tennessee State University as a second semester freshman, I auditioned and Lawrence James, the director now, uh, emeritus professor, cast me as Oedipus. <laughs> we did Sophocles. And uh, I was... Was I 19 yet? I turned 19 in April. So no, I don't think I was 19. So, but the thing was, you know, I could fake a British accent. And how y'all doing Greek? And this is what I, I mean, I know, you know, now Denzel is out there again with Macbeth. How many more times are we going to make this damn Shakespeare movie? Can, can you make some, can we, can we get one tight Sundiata? I really don't want to see you in Macbeth. I'll probably go see because it's a hell of an actor, but let's be clear. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they're always going to do it. So, I mean, to this day, those words are seared in my mind. Tell me, Tyrese, what makes you a prophet? Where were you when the monster was here, weaving her spells and taunts? What words of relief did Thebes hear from you? Her riddle would stagger a simple mind. It demanded the mind of a seer, yet I, ignorant Oedipus, came and confounded her. I had no birds to tell me what to do. I mean, oh yeah, we're okay. cast that dude. I'm like, dude, I'm just watching TV. I can read the lines. Shit, I can memorize these lines. But the whole point is that's it's a hangup, right? But they were doing it at American Negro Theater, and Sidney Poitier got the role that was Harry Belafonte's because Belafonte couldn't show up. And when he got on stage with Lisa Strata, he never looked back. Well, he did have to look back because he then got cast in Anna Lucasta. He's a stage actor, right? But here's where it gets interesting. By the way, let me let me just pause here for a moment in case people missed it because I didn't there was another stitch I put in there to make sure it all draws together when we opened and Portier is sitting at that table a week after he gives that talk at SNCC I'm sorry at SCLC where do we go from here and I, I said SNCC because SNCC is in my mind for a reason it'll become apparent in a minute he has the momentum of being involved in the civil rights and black liberation struggles he has the momentum by 1967 of being the best known black actor in the world. He is the heir, although not politically, overtly, to Paul Robeson, which is going to be important in a moment. You can almost say, I'm going to be generous here. No, 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 I'm not. I'm going to be brutal with it because he would be brutal, I think. Portier. You have Paul Robeson, who took his whole career, biggest movie star in the world, 1930s, 1940s, Emperor Jones. The Proud Valley, Saunders of the River. Paul Robeson, the big body and soul, Oscar Misha. Paul Robeson, the biggest movie star in the world. He, black, 
Man, living in London, him and Essie, as we've talked about, took his whole career with both hands, raised it over his head, the six foot three giant ropes in the Rutgers, and threw it in the trash. That's how the social structure would read it. Because as he wrote in his 1957 memoir, Here I Stand, the artist must stand. I made my choice. I had no alternative. As we talked about the man himself, Paul Robeson, the giant, the great forerunner, as he was called. Sidney Poitier, who knew Paul Robeson, who was apprenticed by Paul Robeson, who loved Paul Robeson, who with tears, he, he talks about this in this life, who cried because they were going to force him to sign a document denouncing Paul Robeson and Canada Lee. We're talking about Canada Lee. That's why I said I'm going to be brutal because uh, Poitier was brutal. I was going to name Canada Lee and I'm going to name it, but not in this genealogy that I'm about to say. Paul Robeson to Sidney Poitier to Denzel Washington. I'm going to be brutal at this point. What about Will Smith? Nah. I'm not saying Will Smith couldn't get there. Maybe I am. But it's like, it's so funny. Poitier said this about his friend, Hal Belafonte. He compared him to Paul Newman. He said, in Bucking the Preacher, my friend Belafonte played a character. I was Buck. He was the preacher. He played that preacher. He said, Harry Belafonte is seen as a matinee idol. He said, but I believe as an as a artist, as an actor, as a practitioner of the craft, that his great gift, his great talent as an actor would be as a character actor. It wouldn't even be as a matinee idol. He said, Paul Newman the same way. He said, y'all looking at Paul Newman, y'all like looking at Paul Newman. Paul Newman really as a character. And then Paul Newman lived, of course, to do some of those roles. And it, of course, even in the comedic roles, remember Geechee Dan? <laughs> Oh man, Harabella Fonte was that uh was Geechee Geechee Dan was the one was that let's do it again where they had uh Big Seymour, Lil, <laughs> Lil Seymour, and uh oh man, the Nicholas brothers. Remember uh, they are Nicholas played it. But anyway, my point is this Robeson, Poitier, Washington, in terms of the men. Now you see him cast with women, Dorothy Dandridge. Is Porgy and Beth, Ruby D, Raising in the Sun. He was in the stage play of Ruby D. Of course, a woman who did not alter her politics, who is not as well known as she should be. Of course, we know the name, Lorraine Hansberry. My friend Imani Perry did a recent book, Looking for Lorraine. There's a new, also another book. I forget the sister's name. Oh, I won't call her another name because the name comes, she just did a book. Oh, I see this. Mm, I see the cover. The gray slate cover with the blue letters on the front. But anyway, get in Monty's book, Looking for Lorraine Hansberry. Also, politics, very radical, revolutionary politics, you know, contemporary with James Baldwin. All them worship Paul Robeson, but Portier was on that tightrope. So when you see him at that table, you see him having come through the period. And this is where I'll tie it to. You see him come through the period where he gets his break. He's in theater. Now they're going to. He's made his first film, No Way Out. Again, let's go here. I'll show y'all table content. Contents. Look at that. The Road to Stardom. They're the films. No Way Out and Blackboard Jungle. Uh, well, Blackboard Jungle. Actually, that's not true. I'm coming to Blackboard Jungle. No Way Out, he plays a surgeon. 
right? It's his first one. Red Ball Express was the second one. Those of you who know what the Red Ball Express was, I found out what the Red Ball Express was when I was younger because my uncle Virgil, you know, my my father and three his brothers went to uh, were drafted. My uncle Virgil was on the Red Ball Express. They in the European theater of operations during World War II. Uh, the majority of drivers that refueled the tanks and t- stuff, they were black and they call them the Red Ball Express because th- that's when your patent talks about. Oh, yeah, you know, we were. Yeah, patent. Most of them drivers were black. Most of those companies were black because if a German sniper could get a bullet in one of them tanks, it was like they were driving bombs. <laughs> you understand? Sidney Poitier makes a film in which he plays one of those soldiers. That's his second film, Red Ball Express. Then the third one is Cry to Beloved Country. He films that in South Africa. That is one of several films he did in South Africa, in fact. It's very interesting. He did um, Cry to Beloved Country in South Africa, something of value, which was a film version of a uh, book by Ruark about Robert Ruark. I think Robert was his first name. I got it right here somewhere. On um, the Mau Mau, the Kenyan Land Freedom Army. When we were in office hours the other night and the sister... uh, Kenyan sister came in and she mentioned we would talk, start talking about Daydon Kimathi, the trial of Daydon Kimathi, which is my African name, Gikuyu name. You know, everybody knows the word Mau Mau, the Kenyan Land Freedom Army. Partier was in a film where he played one of those Africans called Something of Value, uh, Mark of the Hawk. Mark of the Hawk is an interesting film because they filmed that in Nigeria, eastern Nigeria, uh, Inugu, what they call, um, in fact, uh, uh, Brother Oz would appreciate this because Inugu, of course, is in what the country they used to call Biafra, the region they call Biafra, Igbo people. He was over there with uh, Eartha Kitt and he talks to him. Sidney Poitier said, Eartha Kitt, we were filming and then we had, uh, we were done for the day. We had a break. Was it a day or maybe? She said, come on, let's go. Where are you going? He said, we going. These Negroes leave Nugu and go up into following people home to the villages. And so Sidney Poitier said, I watched Eartha Kitt have me climbing these roads. Now we're in the dirt. Now we're up in the mountains. Now we come up and now all of a sudden the, the clearing opens and we're in the village. And there's a sister who was squatting there cooking. And I'm watching her. And that's my mother. I thought about what Van Lou Hamer said when she was in, uh, in Guinea. He said, she it was getting dark, and so Eartha Kitt just squats about 10 feet away from her. This is what City Point and just looking at her, just watching. She sees she's taking it all in. She says, The lady finally looks up and sees us. She says something to us, which I assume was a greeting in her language, and acknowledges it goes back to work. Then after a while, Eartha Kitt's like, You hear that? Poitier's like, Yeah, it's drums. What's going on? She said, He said, I know she wanted to go. So they start walking. Then they come to another opening, and it's this big circle. They drumming, they dancing. Yeah, Eartha Kitt jumped in there, and then she started smiling and dancing. She said, man, this woman is, wow, this is Eartha Kitt, man. It's something else. So they, they go back. Eventually, they go back to the city. And then a couple of days later, they have a week break. And so for the whole week, Eartha Kitt disappears. Now they worry. Ain't nobody heard from her. You know, did she wait Is she Was she kidnapped? She comes back. The night before they supposed to start filming again. Where were you? What do you mean? I went off to another place and I sat with the chief. And I was, he said, this is how I knew it. Now, Eartha Kitt writes in her writings that uh, when asked, why did you marry a white man? Eartha Kitt said, well, the black man I would marry while well, I married the white women. I said, you know, I don't know. Now, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 
Anyway, go ahead. I, 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 we're going to stay. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I on it. Uh, first of all, Uptown Saturday Night, Uptown Saturday Night is where uh, Geechee Dan was. Uh, in that one, Calvin Lockhart played Silky Slim. He Silky Slim. Smalls and Let's Do It Again. Biggie mm-hmm. Smalls, that's where he was. But uh, Eartha Kid, because uh, I'm friends with Kit Shapiro, her daughter. Oh, please. Yes. Yeah. Um, she did not want her child or her children to experience the kind of racism and um, just always having to prove themselves. And for her, it was important that her child be not just racially ambiguous, but be able to, to live a free life. And I thought that that was interesting that, cause she was very, very black from, uh, was it South? Very black. North She's South. North South. Right now. That's yeah, right. Like, and love black people love, and loved herself. Yes. You know, yes. and so it becomes complicated because I think, you know, the men make a choice differently or the kid made a conscious choice that her child would not have to suffer the same assault. I mean, you know, what happened to her when she went to South Africa, you know, to go take yes. her daughter to the park. Anyway, yeah. I, and I find that, it, you know, we have to know the reason. It wasn't, it wasn't a rejection of blackness for her. See, and I, this is, I, I'm so glad you said that, Prof, because that's really what we're talking about with Sidney Poitier as well. And in fact, that's really what we're talking about with all of us. Imagine, and, and this is why, again, I, I recommend this life if you get a chance to read Poitier's uh, autobiography. That first one, 1980. This is where the impossibility of race, race is an impossible concept, especially if you're Black. See, I'm not one of those people like James Baldwin and them. Well, I'm not going to put that on James Baldwin. That's unfair. Anybody who would say, well, you know, race traps white people too. It does. But I'll be damned if I'm going to distribute that to make it look like it's equal. We take those L's. Mud Aubrey, looking at his mom yesterday. Oh, my God. Please. And his his father. I mean, And his sister. And his Come on now. No way you're going to say, well, it it trapped the killers too because race had them. Look. Y'all can talk that shit for your honorarium or your job and write your little essay and let people think you're enlightened and you're forcing us to deal with the tortured soul of America and all that old bullshit. But let me be very clear. I want you to look dead in the eyes of that man, mama and sister and say that shit. I dare you. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? And so you're right. It's so complicated because even Cindy Party is sitting there answering those questions. Like, I got a question for you. Part of that is I'm a human being. You can't judge me until you understand what I'm facing. And even then, Partier becomes not isolated. He's not isolated, but he is alone in this sense. When the critics come for him on the roles he's playing, and he takes basically a year off in retirement before he comes back roaring with these black movies that he has full control over, it stings him in part because he's the only one on the tightrope. He can't talk to Paul Robeson. Robeson made a choice and they took everything from him it took everything from him up to and including his health paul jr say they 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 they, they tortured my father they gave him that they, that's what they did to him i mean but he was the great forerunner city boy said i ain't no paul rosen man hell who is do you understand and so when they bring him after after no way out after cry the beloved country alan payton's novel where he works with Canada Lee, who is also extremely political. Canada Lee, for those person, if y'all don't know the name, Canada Lee, look up Canada Lee. 
There's a couple of good books on him. Canada Lee was an actor in the Paul Robeson mode. He was an intellectual. He was a warrior. He was a social justice warrior and he was an actor. And they tried to break him too. In fact, Humphrey Bogart's movie Sahara that he's in, Canada Lee is in there. It's like set in North Africa. You know, he plays like the Nubian, or I forget the name, the character's name he plays, but they brought City Portier into a room because they wanted to screen test him and then they wanted to offer him the part in Black Boy Jungle. But only because the director had decided, I want Sidney Poitier, because by then he was in his late 20s, mid to late 20s, and they wanted him to play a teenager. And they lied about his age to get the no way out because he was too young. He bumped his birth date back because he thought maybe they'll think I'm too young to play this doctor. But now here come Black Boy Jungle, Glenn Ford, it's gonna put him into a whole nother category. And so, they first call him and say, hey, man, uh, do you know anybody who could do this? You know, some young black actors. So he gives them eight or 10 names. Then they call him back and say, yeah, none of that worked out. Could you come down and meet with us? We want to talk about what this character entails. He gets down there and they ask him, he's in New York. They ask him, uh, well, frankly, you know, really, we want you. Huh? You want me? Okay. He flies out to L.A. Finds out it's really the director that wanted him from Jump, he thinks. Then they take him in a room and say, you need to sign this loyalty oath. Huh? And he writes about this in this life. He said, I felt the blood come to my face. I felt the tears well up in my eyes because they wanted me to write that I denounce Paul Robeson and Canada Lee. He said, this was during the Red Scare. He said, my name was on the list. He said, I even know my name. He said, Maybe my name's on the list because I'm black. I mean, but that, that's the moment I found out, oh, y'all putting me with Kendall Lee and Paul Robeson. And before that, a few pages before that, he's writing about, I didn't know who McCarthy was. I didn't know who McCarthy Now, here's Bobby Kennedy, the Saint Bobby Kennedy. We talk about Saint Bobby and all the wonderful things he's going to do, us kind of thing. I ain't, I, ain't got, I ain't got no opinion one way or another that, but this moment we're having this class right now, maybe we do a whole other class on that. But remember, Kennedy was on McCarthy's staff of the House Un-American Activities Committee, Bobby Kennedy. In fact, of the joke in the Kennedy household, apparently, according to, you know, some of the family members was, you know, they would joke and say, Bobby is smart. Bobby loves people. Bobby wants to do the right thing. But in his heart, Bobby is a cop. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Ask Martin Luther King about Bobby Kennedy. Anyway, the point is this. Portia said, I didn't even know who McCarthy was. I didn't know who McCarthy was. I mean, so, but I learned who he was. He said, I would go to meetings. And he said, I learned, because he was at all these meetings. In fact, my man Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael, tells a story. He was an undergrad at Howard. Yeah, I, I, it's too good. I should I should find that book if I have it around here, just to read it, because the, ah, uh, doggone it. Oh, here, here we go. Yeah, Ready for Revolution. This is in his memoir. This is, I'm just giving you a little bit of a background again, because by the time you see him at that table in 1967, all this has occurred. He says, uh, let me see if I can find it quickly. I might have to go to the index and look it up. No, here we go. He says, a program I remember, this is Stokely Carmichael, I'm reading for Ready for Revolution, page uh, 261. A program I remember most vividly was during my the next academic year. He's at Howard now, 1963. No debate, but a symposium. This one was no way as controversial, but provided no less profound, what proved no less profound than what it taught me. This is after they had a debate between Malcolm X and Bayard Rustin that he went to. He says the subject was literature, more precisely the role of the black writer in struggle. 
what I hear they call today the culture wars. Naturally, we invited Jimmy and his friend Lorraine Hansberry, Jimmy Baldwin, actor playwright Ossie Davis, the novelist John O'Killens, and Ralph Ellison. Our elder brother, friend, and mentor, Professor Sterling Brown, shout out to the ancestor, Makaru. In Egyptian, Makaru means true of voice. The voice is true. The voice is justified, instead of saying the late. At the last minute after announcements had gone out, Mr. Ellison sent his regrets. Not surprising. Miss Hansberry, peace under her spirit, was also unable to participate, but this was truly for reasons of health. Not long after that, the sister danced and went to join the ancestors. I'll put a footnote here just to add this. Of course, we know that City Poitier appeared in the stage version of A Raisin in the Sun, then in the film. Uh, he was thrilled to do it. He and Lorraine Hansberry stopped talking for several years because when in doing the show, City Poitier and his very good friend Ruby D thought that Walter Lee Younger, the place should really kind of center around that energy and that uh, the, the sister who played Lenny, uh, the mother, um, she was so powerful an actress that it really threatened in, in Portier and Ruby D's estimation. He writes about this in this life. He said, this could generate the idea that black men have no autonomy, that black men really have no personality, that they're weak, and that you know they they are they are subservient in a society, and they really can't. And if you've seen the Raising the Sun, you know how that could happen. In fact, I think about the review of Raising the Sun that appeared in New York Times when Diddy was in it on Broadway, which is of course a joke. And when he comes in after he loses the money, it said they had a bunch of young people there from the, the schools that come. They bought tickets for him to watch. And when Diddy comes out and says, "You know, I lost the money," Walter Lee, a very moving scene. The children start laughing. Why are they laughing? That's Diddy. He ain't lose no money. Or, you know, when you gonna do a dance? I know where is it? So, so, so I set out to say that they, they did reconcile, though. They reconciled right just before she made transition. He went to the hospital to see her. They sat and talked about everything, Africa, politics, the state of the race, all that stuff. And he said, I was so happy because, you know, I was I, I didn't want to be out of communication with her, but we really felt that we had to play this differently. And he said, and we did play it differently and we played it differently and it was it, it worked beautifully. In fact, when we opened on Broadway, he says, they gave us a stand ovation and then they started screaming from the audience, author, author. And I jumped off the stage and got Lorraine Hansberry and led her by the hand to the stage. And she took her bows and it was a wonderful moment. We still weren't speaking to each other because she really, we saw it two different ways, but I'm an actor. I think I, I know what to do, even though it was her material. So he goes on and says, Lorraine Hansberry couldn't come. That's what Sully Carmichael is saying. This is 1963. He says, there was another capacity audience and the evening had a, had a movement Howard focus. Jimmy Baldwin was coming off speaking to her on behalf of CORE. Talks about Ozzy Davis, John Killens goes on. And this is what Carmichael says. As our group, was leaving the auditorium after he goes through what happened. He says, a tall figure wearing shades and a trench coat with upturned collar rose from a seat in the last row and started to slip out. Why was this tall brother wearing shades at night? Hey, that's City Portier, Cortland Cox said. Now I gotta ask Cortland, because <laughs> Cortland's still around. Quantrey says, a story come out of time. Man, you crazy. But it was. This is what Portier said. When I heard that all these cats were going to be together in one place, you know, I just couldn't miss it, was what he said. So 
none of this is going to be in any of these white facing publications because for them, Sidney Poitier is the perfect Negro, which is what engendered the critique. Why do y'all love him so much? You love him so much because you got him in this little social structure box, the guess who's coming to dinner box, the lilies of the field box, the defiant ones box, the in the heat of the night box. And you can't even hear. You can't see the him that's standing in front of you. City Portier, who said, I was in those rooms. I didn't know who McCarthy was, but I learned, because I learned when you're in meetings like that, you should just listen. He in the back of the auditorium at Howard, listening to this debate. What's he doing? Just listening. Why is this new guy on shades today? Man, that's City Portier. Really? Hey, man, I heard all these people going to be in the same place. I wasn't going to miss it. Dude, you ain't living in D.C. You came now. For... Yeah, I'm just listening. Really? What you doing? I love black people. I need to understand. I want to understand. I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm listening. Sidney Poitier says that guess who's coming to dinner? Wait a minute. No, no, no. Let me let me do one crack. I'm on my I'm on the clock. I'm going to keep, keep going this way. What about to start with love? Well, we're going to come to that. We're going to come. Yeah, in fact, there's an interesting story around to start with love. We're going to cover that. Instead. So 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 here he is. He's got two, two films on. He's, he's getting another role. It's going to put him in a breakout capacity. He realizes they want me to denounce these guys. And Sidney Poitier writes in a page of just incredible, incredibly moving prose. He said, I felt the heat coming to my face. I felt the tears welling up my eyes. I said, why would I sign this? And then I started thinking, because then they said, well, it's a loyalty oath. Are you loyal to this country? And Poitier said, would this country sign an oath that said it was loyal to me? He said this in his head. And he said, I love Paul Rosen. He said, I love Kennedy Lee. I was in South Africa making a movie with Kennedy Lee, this great black actor. And he took me aside and said, son, I want you to learn so you don't make the same mistakes I made. Sidney Poitier made transition this week at age 94. And the social structure is going to do to him in death what they did to him in life. You don't know a damn thing about Sidney Poitier. Dignified. Integration. Do not get loud and militant. To understand Sidney Poitier, you got to go into governance structure. And this elder tells this man, Candy Lee, who followed in the wake of Paul Robeson, and they they, cruci they try to crucify Paul Robeson, and they and they and they cut Candy Lee's knees out from under him. And then Sidney Poitier says, "Let me tell you something. I remember. I remember just before Candy Lee died." Candy Lee walked from New York City to, well, Manhattan, up Manhattan to White Plains the last weeks of his life to support these Black victims of injustice. So he writes in there, he says, I sat down in that room with that paper and that man. I looked at him. He looked at me. You gonna sign? He said, I felt the tears start coming up. He said, I couldn't control my emotions. I just started crying uncontrollably. And then I said, if you see my respect for Candy Lee as un-American, then I am fucking un-American. And he walked out. This is City Point. This could have made no say this is long before any of those other movies. He's at the beginning. He didn't work for a couple of years after that. I'm sorry. What am I saying? What am I saying? He hadn't worked for a couple of years before that. He had made those two movies and then stuff kind of dried up. It's when he gets in there that he realizes. Oh, I'm on the list. And they went, he said, I didn't sign it. And he made the movie. Why? The director was one of these rogue Hollywood guys. And was like, 
I'm gonna let no, I want you, I don't care. And that's what allowed him to go on. Now, um, then he found himself in uh, a live production NBC Playhouse, Philco Playhouse. They did a live Sunday play. A man is 10 feet tall. It became a film called Edge of the City in 1957. People wanted to cancel. Advertisers were coming in talking about canceling because Hilda Sims was in it and they thought that she was white. He said Hilda Sims was a black woman. She just light-skinned, so to speak. So you see these 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 issues coming up. Where's my um my cinema book? And I'll keep going because and I'm I'm gonna kind of cut this short because to walk through all those movies we won't do and we kind of put some of them in place. So I'm gonna finish in a second here. Um, he when he went to Africa to film something of value, he said, "I I got to Africa the first time and I was like, are there snakes? Are there gonna be snakes in the hotel room?" He said, "I had been." This is what he writes. He said, "I was victimized by the books I read, the movies I saw, the stories I heard. I was too scared to go to sleep." He said, "No, I'm not gonna do that." And so he said, "I had to fight that." He said, "This is where I saw the role of propaganda. I was I wasn't even excited the way I should have been excited to be in Africa the first time. By the time he's there with Earth, the kid is different. But he says this is what happens to our people. He said that's why I was very selective in the roles I played. Very, 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 very. And as he's doing this, as he's growing, I'm gonna mention the relationships now, just very quickly. He had been married to Juanita. They had three children. They eventually had one more, three, four daughters." And he said, you know, if she had been more, as I said, more remain and sophisticated, she probably would have thrown me out early or wouldn't have married me at all. He said she didn't have much interest in theater or film or learning about any of it. Uh, so he said, I went looking for other people to have conversations with. And I'm sure he's censoring some of the stuff in the memoir. We all do. But it's incredibly honest as far as you can see from outside looking in. Julia Mayfield is a very important figure in the African expatriate community in, in Ghana. He's from the United States, but he went to Ghana, leader of that community, knew Malcolm, all this kind of stuff. Portier is hanging out, soaking this stuff, hoping this stuff up. And then he writes a whole chapter called Diane. He said, I spent nine bittersweet years with Diane Carroll. He said, because when I met Diane Carroll, she was married, I was married, and I was like, nah, she's, and the description he gives of Diane Carroll, I'm not even going to, you know, it's just, it's, it's amazing when you see that. They do. Uh, film Paris Blues. Uh, Joanne Woodward, Paul Newman, Sidney Poitier, Diane Carroll. And he said, had they been hardcore and ambitious by this, they would have put Joanne Woodward with me and Diane Carroll with Paul Newman, but they weren't going to do that because the characters spoke to it. But, you know, he said then, he said, but I, I had no control. And I, I wrote this quote down. Let me write this quote down after the book. He says, though history will accurately acknowledge my presence in those proceedings, this moment that I'm making these films and now I'm a box office guy, matinee guy. My contribution was no more important than being at the right place at the right time. One in that series of perfect accidents from which fate fashions her grand designs. History will pinpoint me as merely a minor element in an ongoing major event, a small, if necessary, energy. But I'm nonetheless grateful to have him been chosen. Now, that's when he also started learning the business. David Suskin told him, look, man, you need to, while you're in these rooms, go to them private lunches, go to them private dining rooms. You listen to, you talk to people around, and you start getting your money up, do us kind of things. Father makes transition. And then, remember, Lilies of the Field, like I said, he took that cut to make it, and 
he goes to the Academy Awards by himself. Down the West Coast. Leaves the wife, his daughter's there, because this is the pact him and Diane Carroll made. You leave your husband, I'm going to leave my wife, we're going to get married. Okay. Diane Carroll go home, tell her husband, Monty, it's over, I'm in love with St. Portier. Dude's like, what? He moves out. Sidney <laughs> Poitier go home, tell Juanita. Oh, I'm in love with Diane Carroll. Then he says, he writes this in the book, right? Because again, you got to go to Diane Carroll now. You know, legs are the first to go. Because everybody got their take on this, right? So she's, he says, Sidney Poitier said, but then I saw my, my parents and my family. I heard my father take care of your children. I couldn't leave children. I couldn't leave. Now, this sounds like just a bad soap opera, right? The woman does what she got to do. The man stands. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Bro. Professor Hunter, I love black people. And I love black women. I can see this as clear as if it happened to me. Diane Carroll. You, you probably know this. Right? Diane Carroll. Tell Sidney Poitier. No problem for now. I want you to come with me and meet my husband and tell my husband we we we, we will keep all this above board. <laughs> Dan Carroll is a natural born gangster. One of the reasons he 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 fell in love with her because after he met oh wait this other thing he was coming oh was he was he on the stage? Maybe it was I forget what he he can't. Oh, it was intermission something. I forget, I forget. It was a play or was it No Way Out? No, it wasn't No Way Out. It wouldn't have been No Way Out. It was, anyway, he comes out at intermission, so it must have been a play. And Diane Carroll's mother is there. And she says, by herself, do you know me? He said, no. Beautiful woman like you, though. I, you know, I, I, I should know you, right? He was like, she. he's like, she said, I'm Diane Carroll's mother. He said, I, I was like, I... Uh, uh, I. <laughs> He said, she never critiqued our relationship. Nine years. She never weighed in. But at that moment, I saw something. And over the years, I began to understand. She said, me and her father, we was cool. We was tight. He liked me. Her mother, I understood. She listened more to her mother and her father. Duh. Probably not duh, but you know. And But that sophistication, that charm, that intellect, that approach, he said, that came from the mom. From her, from, from her mother. And so it's fascinating him writing about because he's because every other paragraph and in between lines and not between the lines, every other sentence, he's roasting himself too. He's saying, man, I couldn't, man, yeah, I knew I just, I love Juanita, you know, but, you know, it wasn't, man. Now I got it. And then he said, I went to therapy. I talked to Harry Belafonte, his wife, and he was like, we go to therapy. You go to therapy? I ain't going to therapy. You should go to therapy. He said, I started going to therapy. I was in therapy four to five times a week over nine years i'm unpacking stuff then he realized diane going to therapy too and then she had gotten divorced he finally goes he gets divorced he went he sat the whole story about how he's sitting there with monty diane carroll's wife talking about this and the, you know what he says to her i uh, says to him these two men and she's sitting there diane carroll said so uh did you move out i moved out soon she told i'm did you move out uh, no, not yet, but I'm I'm going to. You going to? You ain't got a date. Hmm. Excuse me, I need to talk to my wife. 
I mean, you <laughs> maybe they need to make them. I don't know who would play Sydney. Who would play Sydney Poitier in Sydney Poitier? Anyway, long story short, they they went to Mexico. Diane Carroll, her husband, they got a divorce. Mexican divorce. They got right. Sydney Poitier goes to Mexico, gets a divorce, gets an apartment in Manhattan, tells Diane Carroll, okay. By then, while they going, while they having this tour, which by the way is public, people know about it. Again, we think about it now. People say, oh, why you married that white woman? Oh, it's a lot more complicated. Like you said, it's complicated, yo. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's all kinds of things going through. He then says, well, before Monty and Diane Carroll break up, they get pregnant. She gets pregnant. And her daughter, that's her daughter, with her husband, Monty. And he's like, that was tough. But yeah, man, you ain't got no right. You can't say nothing. He said, okay, no problem. Then eventually he does get divorced. And then he says, I got a place for us. Will you move in? She said, yeah. He said, okay, let's live together for six months. You know, we'll set it up so your mom can take care of the baby. And then we bring the baby in. But I'd like just to have maybe some time where it just be the two of us. Diane Carroll's like, cool. And then Diane Carroll says, yeah, no, nah, that's not going to work. I need my baby. I, I'm not going to be able to, I need her to be here. And that's when Poitier writes, it It started unraveling. And they never, they didn't make it. He said, because in his mind, he said, and I was I was with the therapist. So I'm telling her, and I said, I know I'm wrong. He, can you imagine that? He's writing about this in retrospect. And he's saying, I know I was wrong, but I also knew I was right. It was, it was all in there. He said, look, y'all did everything. I, I talked to your husband. I talked, I went to your, I, I moved, I got divorced. Can we get six months? No. Uh, no, nah, no. Nah. And he said, I started seeing, see your mom and that's you. And this is going to be me. And he said, I thought then she was half. Juanita was half. And together, this was the woman. And I was just, I'm like, dude, the thing I love about this piece that he wrote, this life, he's writing this. I mean, now it's hard. I mean, you, you have authored dozens of books. You done made the New York Times best of over and over again. And you as a word smith someone trained in the humanities who was soaked in the humanities soaked in literature before you ever set foot on a college campus you know better than i do the i would say deterioration but i'm going to be charitable the shift in language i think about the memoirs people right now mm, child. <laughs> what do you say prof yeah. can you imagine somebody writing that today no really Neither can I really, but I mean, you would know. Yeah, I, I don't think people have enough introspection, self-awareness, you know, that like that requires something. And most people aren't, 99% of people aren't writing their own memoir, period. That's true too. Ooh, you know what? I'm going to say this and I, I'm not going to say a whole lot about it, but I'm going to say this. Last night, you know, Roland Martin did what he always does. Somebody may transition. He'll call everybody he knows, see who we can get on the phone, and they'll do a tribute. So last night he did a tribute, and it was interesting listening to Clark Peters, listening to Glenn Turman, listening to Harry Lennox, listening to Blair Underwood. Something struck me, particularly listening to Peters, Lennox. I mean, Underwood, too, them guys, you know. And then Glenn Turman, the diction, the vocabulary. Mm. And then, this ain't to shade nobody, but then I'll turn on, surf around, look at some of these comments. You can see the change in our standards of education and the language people use. 
right. You know, and I'm listening to what they are. I'm listening to Harry Lennox talk about modern Supreme Court. And I'm looking at Harry Lennox, and you know, immediately I'm thinking about how he played Adam Clayton Powell. I'm looking at Clark Peters, even how Clark Peters played uh, Lester Freeman in The Wire. There's a certain control. And 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 what? Here we come to guess who's coming to dinner. What Sidney Poitier said is, I was a good actor. He said, but when I got on the set of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and then in the heat of the night, he said, that's when I really learned acting. How could this man say this? This guy was the big, he said, no. The key to acting is listening. The key to acting is listening. It isn't just how you deliver the line. It's what you do with the silences. And that's why even in movies that might be considered trash, like he said, I put my heart and soul in Brother John. He said, and it was universally ignored. He said, there were four or five people who thought it was a classic, a masterpiece, but what do they know? He writes this in there. He's what? clearly still bitter about that. You made me watch that. I know I'm it. Gonna, I know I'm it. I know it. I know it. But see, I look at that. I'm looking at the silences. I mean, the dialogue is like secondary to me. I'm looking at how he's reacting. And in that scene, oh my God, that famous scene in, in the heat of the night where he slaps in the cot. Remember they're in, the, they're in the greenhouse and Rod Steiger is there in the corner and he brings him to question this white man who's clearly from the antebellum era and the brother, the butler comes in with the lemonade. That butler, by the way, Jester Harrison, the great Jester Harrison in, in the heat of the night. And he says, are, are you you're here to question me? He said, yes. Where were you? And then the white man hits him across and then he hits him back. <laughs> and the white man does like this. I said, that is a line that me and my friend to this day, that is the line we use when you encounter a racist who you know wants to say something, but knows that they would lose all of their dental work if they open their lips to say it. The man says it in that moment. He slaps Sydney 48. 48 slaps him right back. And the white man says, there was a time when I could have had you shot. <laughs> you know that's going through the mind of every... Come on. There was a time when I could have had you shot. And Portier just looks at him and then walks out. The sheriff walks out and Jester Harrison, this black man, this man who comes from the era of Canada Lee. Most people know him because he was an amen. He played the old, older deacon in amen. The Harrisons, there's a book called The Harrisons. It's a whole family history. Brilliant. Jester Harrison, the butler, looking out behind, as he goes out, and he looks back at the white man like, it's, it's like, at that moment, this black man who has taken more indignities, a lifetime of indignities was vindicated in that one slap. As Clyde Woods, a film historian said, he said, Dick Gregory once said, in Hollywood, a white man would have to burn your house down, rape your wife, sell your children, destroy everything in your life, and then you might be able to say something. But you ain't never get to hit no white man. <laughs> that slap is legendary for a reason. But then the critics, including the brother who wrote in the New York Times, said, yeah, he got to slap a white man, but the white man hit him first. The whole point is you don't get to have no unrestrained violence. Then Poitier says these white boys figured out they could make money and all these movies start getting made. All these black exploitation movies, which are really revenge fantasies, he says, Oh, I'm into the revenge fantasies. I will put my three dollars down. And I saw all of them. Now he's in the Bahamas. He didn't take a year off because he's like, ah, hell, 
they done roasted me. Now he says, all these black exploitation movies coming out. I'm looking at these movies like, damn, man, come on. These are two-dimensional. We got to have something better. Man. But you know what? I ain't mad because I like the visceral thrill of coming out to Afro with the gun. Boom, kicking some. So I'm here for all of that. But he says, they're still, they criticize me. But I was in a straight jacket. I had no control. And so he says, I was on a plane. Jim Brown sat next to me. He said, I always love Jim Brown for this. And here's what he writes. He says, Jim Brown sits next to me and says, uh, I just came up here to tell you, thank you. I said, what? He said, Jim Brown, who did the Dirty Dozen, you know, who then he's, then he's doing his own movies with Fred Williamson and stuff. Fred Williamson to give an interview, said, don't put me with Sidney Poitier. I'm not Sidney Poitier. My movies make money. Because by then, Poitier's on the back end. We're going to come back to uh, yeah, this was coming to dinner in a second. And now we're talking about the late 60s, early 70s. Now we're in the early 70s now with the black exploitation stuff. He says, Brown said, thank you, man, because of what you did. It allowed some of us to get put on and put other people on. So I just want you to know, you know, thank you. I respect you. And thank you for that. He said that meant the world to me because I was getting killed. And here's Jim Brown, who they would try to say, oh, Jim, this is a black exploitation. And Poitier himself had critique. But then he said, no. But I get it, but I also understand the people are making money, we're going to use our language here, are the social structure. And the minute that y'all get tired of seeing this, they're going to say, see, you can't market to the black community. No, because every movie you make is two-dimensional. He said, I knew, I knew that the minute that people got tired of seeing that over and over again, they're going to say, See, we don't, that's why we don't make black movies. Those aren't black movies. That's one dimension of black life, albeit a very important one. But we are complicated. We are layered. And so when he then, when Belafonte, when he bucking the preacher, he said, bucking the preacher about broke even. I tried to make a warm December, a warm December and, it, and it didn't make money. And then I came to him. I said, you know what? Give me $2 million to make this movie. W what movie is that? Uptown Saturday Night. He said, uh, wait, two million? I don't know. He said, the ceiling is three million. Yeah. Oh, he said, and then he said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm an owner of this company. Write the check. Complete creative control. He said, I, I made it two instead of three. I knew it had to be tight, but I didn't want to have no problems. They made it. They screened it. He said, the president of the company was sitting there, the guy we had there, he fell asleep in the first 10 minutes. He said, was one white man in there after it was over. And he said, Sydney, this movie gonna make nine, $10 million. Huh? You think so? Yeah. Them other guys are scared because they don't know what to make of this because they ain't never seen it. And Poitier was like, see, I'm telling you. He said, black people want to laugh. And when you think about those three movies, mm -hmm. <laughs> he said, we, we ain't got, I mean, hey, I'm with it, man. I'm with Shaft. I'm with Son of Shaft. I'm with, you know, a Coffee Brown, Cleopatra. I'm with that. I ain't, but I'm saying we can do more nuance. And when he did those, they're funny as hell, but they're human. Yes. You know, they're coming out the ship. And he said, not only did that movie make nine or $10 million, I came back, so let's do it again. He said, they made double that. And so what he says, and I'm going to kind of end with this, because in the, in the, in the, write-ups in the tv stuff and all the tributes that are going to come out they're not going to mention those movies they're going to keep talking about let's what's let's uh, guess who's coming to dinner because it's an interracial relationship what we've established is his first interracial relationship was with that white girl who uh 
was on the cover of Vogue. They were in Paris, him and somebody else, a filmmaker. And it's like, who is this white girl? They were trying to cast a lost man. That's where he met her. And so, you know, I mean, it was what it was. Jo Joanna, he met her. It's like 1972, 73. And this is after him and Diane Carroll break up. He then started dating around everywhere, right? He right, He's got a chapter in there called Discoveries where he, see, he met this one sister named Michelle, Michelle Clark. She was an anchor, black anchor woman. She was well, a black reporter. She was a CBS in DC, up and coming. She died in a plane crash, December 1972. Damn. Same year he made For the Love of Ivy with the great Abby Lincoln, Aminata Mosica, uh, Max Roach's partner, uh, the brilliant sister. I mean, Abby Lincoln is another one, just incredible. But he then met that, met his wife, the one he stayed married to, to, you know, they made transition, uh, jo Joanna Shimkus. They were in Paris. They filmed in Philadelphia. Remember, he made this movie, The Lost Man, in Philly. And then they went did the interior stuff in California. They went to Puerto Rico, then back to New York City. Now, this is interesting. I had to, yeah, I'll get into that in a minute. Well, no, I should say it now. He goes to Puerto Rico to get away. And then he goes to Bahamas, takes a trip down there, and he meets up with Quincy Jones, his white wife. <laughs> he meets up with Bella Fonte and him. But Sammy Davis Jr. is there. Because remember now, they freeze Sammy Davis Jr. They freeze him in time. Sammy Davis Jr. is often frozen in time with his white wife. Uh, uh, no, no, Quincy Jones married to Ula at the time. Um, May Britt. Yes. Say it again. May Britt, Sammy Davis Jr. Yes, Sammy Davis Jr., right. But that ain't, that ain't that, that's not the girl. Sammy Davis Jr. is bitter. Because he's down there and all the couples are down there. Sydney, they brought this white girl down. Now, this is after all these sisters, including Diane Carroll, which in some ways is the love of his life. And this love affair is mutual. And so here comes uh, and his first four daughters, of course, with the sister. So he is still alive. They're all there. Like I said, if you find that picture, you see the whole family, there, including his first wife, who's still alive, who he thanks all through the book, including at the end. He says, uh, he says, just it just wasn't, you know, he, he then says Sam Dave Jr. is all down in the dumps because the girl he there with is in another relationship. She's going home, whatever. She wants to leave. So what happens? They all get on the phones, get on the telegrams, trying to get the woman who they know Sammy Davis loves, who's a dancer in his shows, who want, you know, can you get Altavista to come down here? Oh. Altavista comes, Sammy Davis Jr. whole mood changes and of course they were married shortly thereafter my point is that's a black woman i said but they freeze even there. like you said it's complicated he loved her you know what i'm saying it's, it's complicated so anyway uh, let me let me let me finish with because guess who's coming to dinner is, is an interesting story in this sense because he he was with spencer tracy and Catherine hepburn he says tracy was an intellectual he died just several several months after they filmed guess who's coming to dinner he said i knew why it was important i knew that you know, it was socially important. It would lead to, you know, barrier breaking. He said, but I'm playing roles that I feel comfortable playing because I'm never going to play a role that's going to not represent black people. And some people, and it can be read as being race neutral sometimes. But he said, what is that? I'm myself. I'm going to be myself. In some ways, him and Denzel Washington have that similarity. So anyway, he, oh, by the way, when him, when him and, uh, Diane Carroll start having the thing. He gets the apartment and she break up. Around this time, Harry Belafonte gets, tells him, hey, man, make this run with me. Where are we going? We're going to Mississippi. For what? 
I gotta take this money down here. It's like seventy thousand dollars for what? He said, "Cause the kids need the money." Huh? Who kid? Snick. Snick. Okay. You my man's. Let's go. It's like sixty three. 64. 60, no, well, had to be 63 or 62 because Bobby Kennedy was attorney general and Belafonte calls Kennedy and said, look, me and Cindy Poitier going down there. You know what Kennedy didn't say? Why y'all got to go? Can't you send somebody else? Their answer, we going because it's us. They need to see us. MF. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> y'all love the Kennedys. I mean, hey, whatever. My point is this. We going. He said, get to the Jackson airport. Portia said, get to the Jackson Airport. Stokely Carmichael, his boys there to pick us up. They load us in the car and we take off from the airport head to Greenville. It's nighttime. We look in the rearview mirror and clearly some cats is following us. They speed up. When I mean, we speed up, they speed up. I'm looking at Harry. And so we was like, Stokely, what, man, what the, these cats, he said, it's the clan. It's the clan. Why y'all cool? He said, Stokely Carmichael said, they got cannons and we got cannons. They ain't gonna bother us. They got the Greenwood, Green, uh, Greenwood, Mississippi. Car pulled off. They went on in. Had the meeting. Everybody ate. And then they went to the house they were gonna stay. And they was like, the city party is like, damn, they left us alone. Then him and Belafonte are in a house of a local person, a black leader who, you know, is sympathetic to the movement, with the movement. And I'm, this is the important thing about we had to understand. This ain't gonna be nowhere in none of these tributes. Tributes. Attempts to put him in that social structure. The person's house they stayed in is from that community, Greenwood, Mississippi. He's risking everything. Because totally them, the SNCC kids going to leave. Courtland Cox, Charlie Cobb, you know, they're going to, you know. Then from there, they're not even from there like, you know, Dory Ladner, Joyce Ladner and them from Hattiesburg. They, they got to, you know, he, he could lose everything. Harry Belafonte, City Portier, staying in this man's house in a room. They in a room. They got a room. They sharing. They in there. He said, we didn't sleep much at all because every little crack, Every little twig, twig we heard, we up looking in the window, looking out the window. And then we was like, look, are we all right? We wanted to go to the owner of the house and say, look, man, you got a rifle we can have? And they told them, bro, we good. We got four guys who are strapped. We got four guys outside completely loaded. There's nothing that's going to happen to y'all. And they said at one point, like four o'clock in the morning, they heard some buy a tool shed or something and the portrait was like hey man do you hear that yeah come on man let's go they get up and the guys is like bro ain't nothing happening out here that we didn't already see then a car pulled up then a car went by they like what the hell no don't worry about it my point is this when we talk about non-violence yeah that's a fairy tale Sydney portier would tell you they all had guns in other words, they weren't gonna, and they, and that was the trip that he made down there. I mean, there are all kind of other trips, all kind of stories about cars in there. It was one story they was out in California, and he uh, called himself speeding, and Diane Carroll was following him from the party, and he said, "I went up to seventy, then eighty, then ninety, then ninety-five. I was hundred miles an hour, and I never lost her. I was like, look. So finally, we got back to the city. I'm like, why did you, why did you keep speeding up? You crazy? He, she was like. I didn't know what I didn't know where I was going, <laughs> but what it showed, one of the things it showed here him was she she crazy crazy as I am. I mean, so you I mean you can almost see how this relationship would have played out. Anyway, so who's I gonna say? Oh, 
He then builds a house in the Bahamas after he makes The Lost Man, him and Joanna, they get together. He makes Brother John. He makes all these other movies. And again, this is during the period now, and I just kind of is way winding to a conclusion. Portier, the reason they call us the road to stardom, these early movies, No Way Out, Crowd of Beloved Country, um, Blackboard Jungle, those are the ones you're probably going to hear about. Then Recognition and Success, roughly speaking, 1958 to 66, The Defiant Ones with Tony Curtis. And that's that's the bullseye. That's where you see a lot of the stuff that elevates him. Raising the Sun, Paris Blues. Um, oh, in The Greatest Story, that was one of those all-star, you know, Shelly Winters, Max Monsnato played Jesus Christ, you know, in a bad miscasting. Anyway, all that. City Porter is in that. He plays Simon the Cyrenian, the black dude that takes the cross from Jesus and walks it up on Cal. It's crazy. I mean, but it was kind of like when them all-star, like it's a mad, mad world, except the Easter story, so to speak. Uh, and then 1967, to serve with love in the heat of the night and guess who's coming to dinner. He said, at one point I had the number one, the number two, and the number three movies in America all during the same year. And he said, the resentment from black people, I understood it because here I was commanding hundreds of thousands of dollars of film and most black actors couldn't even get a job. He said, I didn't ask for that. And I tried to play my position and represent us. But I also understood where that resentment was coming from. And it was legitimate. He said, and he writes about this. He says, I could not do anything about it. People will say, well, you should have done something. You could have done something. What could I do? He said, telling them about the times I went and protested in the studio meetings, telling them how I went in and told you need to hire them and how they ignored me would not do any good. So why would I just tell y'all? He writes about it later, but he's saying, don't think I wasn't in there fighting, but it did no good. And then when you reflect on the fact that right at the moment when his career could have taken off and he could have thrown it all in the trash by saying, I'm not signing this loyalty oath, he refused to sell out Paul Robeson and Canada Lee. And you just realize, as you just said, it is complicated. City Portier's life was complicated, complicated like the rest of ours, except he lived it out loud. And now they can put him in a glass case and have him nodding honorary Oscars toward Denzel Washington in 2002 after they give Denzel Washington an Oscar not for playing Reuben Hurricane Carter, not for playing Malcolm X, but for playing a damn dirty cop. This social structure is dirty, it's nasty, it's wicked, and he ends the book with this. And so let me go to Sir with Love for a second. To Sir with Love is an interesting uh, piece. To Sir with Love was a novel written by a dude named uh, Eustace Edward Ricardo Braithwaite. He was a professor at Howard University for a number of years. He made transition in 2016 at the age of 104. Oz would appreciate this and all the UK folk who come from, who know the Windrush generation, those people from the continent of Africa and from the Caribbean, particularly Windrush, the boat Windrush, who came to the UK after World War II to rebuild England who are being sold out at this moment as we're constantly reminded because they say we ain't got your birth records your children are, are y'all citizens with he was from guyana uh um er braithwaite professor braithwaite he was a diplomat he was uh the guyanese guyana's uh, ambassador to the united nations and to venezuela he was a royal air force pilot he had a degree from cambridge university and he couldn't get a job as an engineer in the uk and so he took a job teaching white poor white kids, disadvantaged so-called kids in the East End of London until he could get a job. He wrote a number of books, a paid servant, a kind of homecoming, reluctant neighbors, honorary white he wrote about in South Africa. 
And of course, Lulu does the number one theme song, To Sir Willow. You get all that, you know, and City Portier plays him, basically. He read the novel and then they read the, 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 the treatment. So it's interesting. But they downplay the real thesis. The real thesis is this is what's happening to black immigrants in England. This is why Braithwaite wrote it. It's fascinating. In fact, Braithwaite saw the movie and Professor Braithwaite said, when I saw the film, I was not impressed. Something had been lost in the translation from book to film. And when I think of To Serve With Love and I think of a piece of the action, I think there's the difference between the social structure and the governance structure. The beloved black teacher, sir, to white folk, and this is great, and humanity. Oh, and they asked Braithwaite, uh, so do you keep up with your students, the ones that, you know, you help? He said, no. But I assume, I hope I had a positive influence on their life. Why do you think my life is built around what happened to those students? I'm just going to be tracing them around? You think I'm some kind of damn butler or something? I mean, you know, I'm going to ask you a question. Why don't you ask me about my life? I'm an ambassador. In other words, Sidney Poitier sitting at that table in 1967 in Atlanta, E.R. Braithwaite when asked, well, do you keep up with those students? In other words, how does it feel to be a problem? And where? Oh, my goodness. Somebody dang the door. It's Where the book in this it's the book man. It's the yes, book man. It might be. It is might it... be. <laughs> Should we pause? Should we pause? Should we pause? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Tell them what your favorite City Portier so, movie is while I get this. Your book, Doctor Carr. All right. Let me see. Yeah, go ahead. I'll be right back. <laughs> uh, Let me see. I don't doing. have a favorite. <laughs> Since he made me watch Brother John, I was mad at that actually. Uh, where I think City Portier was playing God or Jesus or something. Not my favorite book. I'm actually in the chat Nubia, so I have I'm completely going down a rabbit hole as everybody's talking about their imaginary husbands. Um, I had to drop my real husband uh, in the chat Nubia so that people will okay. know. Uh, but he's back with us. I'm just starting. Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. Did y'all? Yeah. Y'all should put y'all favorite city <laughs> party. I'm sure they've been doing it the whole time. I don't have one. I don't have a favorite. You uh, don't? No, I don't. I don't. Yeah, favorite scenes. You know, if I'm gonna pick, it's gonna be one of them uptown Saturday, Saturday nights. Or right. It's about Poitier for me. You know, it's about Flip Wilson. It's about Richard Pryor. It's about Rosalind Cash or or Paula Kelly. You know, it's it's all the James Earl Jones. It's all the Calvin Lockhart who I had a humongous crush on, and then I ended up going to school with his niece. Really? Because um, she's from the Bahamas. Gail Lockhart was yes. uh, in school with me, and uh, that was her cousin or uh, uncle. <laughs> You know, Tom Lockhart, smoothest, sexiest dude. Anyway. Smooth. No, no, no. Seriously. Smooth. Yes. I wish he could have. Well, no. I started to say, I wish he could have been there for the uh, Coming to America sequel, but no. He no. didn't. No. Right. no. What's, what's in the box, Doc? Well. Do we get a book? Yes. It's from the University of Chicago. And I. Let's see here. Well, you, you, University of Chicago Press, they had a sale, University of Texas. Uh, Leonard Moore, interesting. Got a book called Teaching Black History to White People. You don't only buy stuff like this when it's on sale. <laughs> so, because, I mean, hey, you know, I, no, listen, I'll teach anybody, obviously. We'll be in class with anybody. And by the way, I hope everybody is completing. If you're in Nubia, you get those first six chapters of the Education of the Negro. Can I tell you how brilliant this is, by the way? Um, oh, no. <laughs> On Monday, so those of you who are on YouTube, in Nubia, we have uh, office hours. Well, Dr. Carr has office hours. And he kicked off, uh, we're doing a book club. I mean, it's probably the largest book club discussion on on this uh, ever. 
That's right. Uh, but yeah, miseducation of the Negro. And I just want to, you know, you're using your book. We actually have a copy of it in in uh, oh, yeah, have, different page numbers. We're doing an introduction. Yeah. So you went through it, and I think this is because even how we those of us who are in book clubs, yes. we usually don't have a master teacher center of it helping us suss through some of these concepts. And the way you're framing it is that we're going to be actually in conversation with Carter G. Woodson. That's that, right. That's so powerful. So thank you for, for doing that because I didn't oh, know that was going to happen. Thank you. There'd be no place to do it and no idea to do it, no vision of doing it if it weren't for Nubia and narrative. So if you all are not, thank you. Thank you. And if, if you all are not joined up, you should need to, need to, to, to get going because um, like I said, we have reading groups and folk come together but by providing, as Narrative has done, the copy, so you subscribe, you know, the copy is there. And then we got Souls of Black Folk, we're going to get some more. I'm really thinking the wrong Bennett, maybe, next. I don't know what we'll think about this. We're going to do about a book a month, and we're going to do reads. And, of course, you know, people have chat functions on YouTube. We have chat functions. We have social media. The chat, we use the chat in, in, in Nubia. Everybody's participating. And we're going to you know, like I said, I'll do maybe about 15, 20 minutes, kind of the first six. The chapters are small. So, you know, a couple of key points. And the rest of the time, we're, we're going to have conversation. And it's very important because we often use the titles of books like we use the face of our people, Sidney Poitier being one. I think probably some people have learned a few things about uh, Sir Sidney Poitier. Right, because they gave him that honorary nice shit, which I thought was hilarious because uh they don't refer to him as Sir Sidney Poitier in the British paper, the Financial Times weekend this morning. And I just wanted to double check to make sure I wasn't crazy. So I searched for Sir Sir David Bowie, and then I remembered, wait, I can't search for Sir David Bowie. Why? Because Bowie refused to let the Queen give him a nice ship. He said, No, I didn't get into this for that, which I thought was interesting. This whole class thing with David Bowie, I think. But Elton John did. And they refer to him as Sir Elton John in the paper because he's still here, not an ancestor. But they didn't say Sir Tidney Portier. I'm like, even, okay. Anyway, the point is that in reading The Miseducation of the Negro, we're taking it from a title and an avatar, a name of a book, a couple of quotes from a book, and Carter G. Woodson as a face we kind of increasingly recognize. We're going to listen to him. We're going to sit with him. And in reading it slowly, over the course of about six chapters a week, which isn't very long. Um, you know, it's about 35 pages a week because they're very short chapters. We will be able to receive that sebaite. The Egyptians would call it instruction. And it's a very important process. So, you know, the concept of book club, the concept of reading club, the concept of reading groups, we've been doing that since we've had to master this language. And, so, and 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 the and the 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 key ones, the anchor ones that came out of the 19th century, the literary clubs, the early 20th century, um, and there are any number of ones I can name, but I won't get into it. Whether it be the Bethel Historical Society in D.C., uh, Philadelphia's uh, Negro Historical Society, uh, Yonkers, where Arthur Sean, Charles Schomburg, John Bruce, and them were. I mean, the Edward Wilmot Blyden Society, the old Harlem History Club. I said I wasn't going to do it, but I just need a couple of them. And I'm going to stop there. I just refer you to a couple of good secondary sources that talk about some of these books, uh, some of these clubs, and, and many of them, in fact. Uh, Elizabeth McHenry has written a couple of books. Uh, the most recent one is uh, To Make Negro Literature, but she did another book on, I forget, the something readers. 
forgotten readers or forbidden readers. So that's the only thing I like. I don't like about titles like that because some people never forgot. And what we're continuing in is that tradition of co collective study and insight and sharing because Woodson's prose is so accessible and his ideas are so layered in terms of how he's engaging with black people, even in 19, the early 1930s during the depression. That's going to elicit a very a number. It's going to resonate with people, and it resonates. It already started resonating. So yeah, this is um this brother Leonard Moore has been teaching for over a quarter century, Black history mostly to white people. So this University of Texas Press Leonard Moore. I'm gonna get that. There were three in the box though. Um, the University of Press Chicago Chicago is the distributor, but it's University of Texas Press had a sale. This is um civil rights in Black and Brown. Histories of resistance and struggle in Texas. So I'm adding this to my Texas crew, um, you know, thinking more deeply about that. There were a couple of articles in here that I saw preview that I wanted to get uh, my hands on. But I, uh, you know, you got to get the whole book to get a piece of it. I'm not one of them electronic book Negroes. And then this one I thought is an interesting topic. This is uh, from the art galleries at the University of Texas, Austin. Ironically, one of the people talked about in this civil rights in black and brown, uh, Hyman Sweat wasn't even allowed to go to law school. Well, they eventually got him there and drove him crazy. It's called Collecting Black Studies. This is uh, the art galleries. You know, University of Texas Austin has a robust African African diaspora, African American studies program. I don't know that I would call it Black Studies in terms of methodology, but it doesn't matter what I would call it. I'm just you know gathering stuff to read and learn. So uh, Collecting Black Studies, snappy title. I looked at it. Uh, it basically looking at the material culture that folks have been able to collect at Texas. And like a lot of HWCUs with a lot of money, you know, you can start collecting Black people. So you know, Emory University, uh, University of Texas, Austin, Columbia. Those of you in New York, I encourage you to go to the Metropolitan Museum. Uh, they have put together a, uh, you know, they've closed their wing. They're going to renovate, you know, millions of dollars over the next few years. And so they've gathered together, uh, I think it's 14 key pieces from their i would say comedic we would say comedic but they would say ancient egyptian near east ancient egyptian wing their african art wings and they've paired them one to one 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 and you see an ancient egyptian statuary from the pharaonic age of a woman and a man with her hand around shoulder and you see like a dogon or yoruba with the man with the woman and then you see the staff and what you see is the Egyptians were Africans. We knew that, but they call it a tribute to Sheikh Anta Joe, which I just laugh because all of us who've ever been to the Met and those of us who've been in there and either led or co-led or participated in tours, African-centered tours, know that we've been going in there for decades doing that. And so now the Met is going to get with the program in part because we have forced them to get with the program. So now you're going to, you can see that Egypt is African. Yeah. And not only can see that Egypt is African, but by African, you mean what y'all would call sub-Saharan African. Well, you know what I mean? And then you're going to act like you knew it all along and you're going to make a tribute to a man y'all tried to run out of the world because of his intellectual work. No problem. And only my only regret is that they don't have an exhibition catalog because I would get that too. But it's going to be there now for the next couple of years. So I know at some point I'm going to get up there and, and get whatever. You can go on their website and see. Um, but let me, let me, oh, go ahead. No, just some housekeeping. Um, so Monday, we're going to be doing that. 
maybe we should move Lanny Grenier to then, or do you have? Oh, yeah, I can I can mention it. I can mention her very quickly if you all would like, because uh, people might not know, and I'll just maybe I'll keep it real short. Today. And I only know her because I think Bill Clinton had an opportunity or wanted to uh, appoint her as the first Black woman Supreme Court justice, and got derailed because of her quote unquote politics. I think they uh, tried to. Uh, well, he radical or something. Yeah, he tried to. Well, he he he. Uh, she was going to be over the civil rights division of wow. the DOJ. Okay. And so Supreme Court, it was a cabinet position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, not even sub cabinet. In fact, not not even attorney general. Lonnie Guineer, and here it's in today's time. There's uh, Sister Guineer. I did not know her. I mean, I met her. I seen her speak. She was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Law. Uh, for some time. Uh, she's very young, relatively speaking, 71, made transition. Um, she was the, I'll just read from Clay Risen. Clay Risen has written all these black obituaries over the last few uh, weeks. Ms. Guineer was a 43-year-old professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School when President Clinton nominated her for the post of Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights. But she quickly came under fire from Republicans for her progressive views on voting rights and quotas. Uh, yeah. Lonnie Guineer was brilliant, first of all. And we'll talk more about her. Like, we can talk about her next week. Her father, uh, Ewart Guineer, was the uh, chair of Black Studies at Harvard back in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, she comes out of a gener several generations of, of academics, lawyers. Um, Lonnie Guineer was always thinking outside the box as it related to participation in the, the levers of governance in a society. So for her, for example, she had a theory, not alone, but she wrote several books. The Miner's Canary is very good. Uh, Lift Every Voice is very good. The one I, I pulled to show you all is her most recent book, um, 2014, called The Tyranny of the Meritocracy, Democratizing Higher Education in America. Brilliant sister. Uh, her basic thesis is that we have to reconsider um, the idea of what she calls testocratic merit. If you don't have SAT prep, you don't get the SAT score. So th this ain't this ain't a meritocracy. This is a testocracy. And so Bill Clinton didn't spend any political capital and sold her out. That's basically what happened. Mm. You know, I mean, but you know, Bill Clinton is a consistent profile in courage. So I mean, <laughs> you know, so at any rate, uh, she, she was actually born in Manhattan, raised in Queens. Um, she led the Voting Rights Project at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. She was a professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania. And then, last thing I'll mention for now, we pick it up next week, we talk some more about her theories, because there's some very important stuff around voting that we should talk about. I, I cover in my class at Howard Law, and we talk about her work in particular. Um, Derek Bell left the faculty of Harvard because he said, you've never tenured he would say woman of color. I would say non-white woman. I don't believe in it. Everybody got color. You mean non-white. So he said, you've never tenured a non-white woman. Lonnie Guineer was the first non-white woman tenured to the Harvard Law Faculty. So that shows you how ass backward Harvard is. But anyway, that's a whole nother story for another day. All right. And also today is the birthday of Shirley Bassey. Oh! Shirley, Shirley, Shirley Bassey? Shirley Bassey, yes. Shirley, a uh, gold finger. Yes, Shirley Bassey. <laughs> no, I ain't know. I ain't know. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. That's not. Is it gold finger? Diamonds are forever. 
They are all I need to please me. Goldfinger. The Shirley Nasty. No, anyway, yeah. I think it was Goldfinger. Was it Goldfinger? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think the, that, I think maybe she did them both. And she, did, she did Diamonds Are Forever and she did Moonraker. Moonraker too. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Charlie yeah. <laughs> See this? I, I promise you. Look, I ain't no big Hollywood person, but again, with City Party, mm -hmm. there was a moment there where you could go to the movies, <laughs> or you experienced the movies, and the black people in them made you smile. I mean, think about City Poitier. Even if he, even if the critique is there, Poitier's got to be in this box. The I don't. I don't want to use the word dignity. Let me use the Yoruba word. It tutu, coolness. They call me Mr. Tibbs. I mean, there was a certain projection. And, and I want to mention just a couple other things in, in closing. Sidney Poitier was born in Florida, but he was a child of the Caribbean. And he was deeply proud of being Black. And he, in this life, crit critiqued his home country, uh, the Bahamas. Uh, he had gotten involved in Bahamian politics, which is crazy to me because... He uh, when they came out of uh, came out of independence, he helped his friend uh, Lyndon Pinling become the prime minister. He helped him win the election, the first election in the Bahamas. By the way, um, hold on for a second, because I am going to close. I just want to because one thing I love about Kwame Ture is when Kwame Ture was married, he and Mary McCable were married. She wanted to do business in African countries. And she said that uh, that he says the local authorities were just delighted, cooperative, very welcoming. Why not? A celebrated African artist investing in an African nation in the Caribbean. Zinzi threw herself into the idea with her usual energy and enthusiasm. She invested considerable money, finding a place, hiring folks, importing the merchandise. The opening was a highly successful fashion show. This is in Bahamas. The proceeds of which she donated to an institution for the blind. My little sister, Janeth, now Nagib, was one of the models. Everything went splendidly. She was very happy. However, the next day, the local press ran a story about our engagement. Talking about the engagement of Mary McCabe and Kwame Ture. When she is summoned to the prime minister's office the next day, she simply assumes the man wishes to congratulate her and offer his support. After all, the country needed investment, right? Instead, Lyndon Penling just is Sidney Poitier's friend, not a prime minister. Instead, Lyndon Pinling summarily, summarily informs her that her business permits are canceled and that suddenly she was no longer welcome in the Bahamas, period. Astonished, she asks for an explanation of the sudden about face. Well, he says, we hadn't known of your engagement to the American revolutionary Stokely Carmichael. He is persona non grata in the British Commonwealth, of which the Bahamas is a part, end quote. This was Stokely writes, Kwame Ture. That shameless, callous, cowardly, greasy, chain, money-grubbing, boot-licking black lackey, calling himself, <laughs> calling himself head of an independent black nation, he was nothing but the overseer of a Caribbean plantation. Miriam had been deeply hurt when she returned from that betrayal by one of us. Sidney Poitier, in the same straitjacket his friend was in, in, but not the same straitjacket at the same time, because the, uh, the formal announcement was made by the Prime Minister's office and the Director of, of Tourism from the Bahamas yesterday. 
he's a son. He was he, he served Sidney Poitier. At the same time, this is what Sidney Poitier had to say about the Bahamas in this life near the end of uh, the book in a chapter called Bahamas. He says, it disturbed me deeply. This after he done built a house down there with his new wife, John. They down there, right? He said, it disturbed me deeply that there was no cultural life expressing the history of the people. Absolutely none. I did see wood carvings, but they were imported from Haiti to sell to tourists in the Bahamas. It was tourism so enormously successful over so many years that it contaminated, diluted, debased the shape of all things cultural in those islands until there was no longer any real semblance of a Bahamian cultural identity. Then he started critiquing the classism. He said, you got the, the, the black folk with some money trying to get away from the poor black people in the Bahamas, the black people who I came from. He said, you got the black people with money and the white people with money and they trying to get away from each other. He said, this is this place is not big enough for this. He starts critiquing classism. Since 1974, he said, we moved to Beverly Hills, haven't been back. Now, of course, they gone back after that. This was 1980 when he wrote. But he ends with this. Um, at the very end of the book, this is what he says. This is where, we, you know, this gives us, gives us the, uh, gives us the, uh, the, the, the move from him. He said, let us ask the question bluntly. He's talking to the reader now. What are the real no bullshit chances of a non-white in a risky high stake cutthroat game such as this, meaning Hollywood? The answer is lean at best. But so what? Then he says the global, there's a global black market, but the people who live around, because they will say, we won't go box office. We see what Black Panther did in Africa even as it made up in Africa. There is a market, but you've got to figure it out. He predicts what's going to happen. This is what he says. He says, we're going to have to make up most of our own films. I think we should no longer expect the white filmmaker to be the champion of our dreams. Maybe the only thing we would ask from them is bending the financing rules some. Because otherwise, it's going to be his film and it's going to be his comments on the film. Now, think about that because I know filmmakers who approached Sidney Poitier, but by then he was past having that kind of clout. And, you know, the revolutionary is not going to make films in Hollywood. There are going to be some brilliant people that get a little bit of it done. I mean, I think about Avery DuVernay, you know, if you're like, but Holly Grimmer, he ain't going to make no Hollywood films. He made a decision not to, and he didn't waste his time. But but those of you who think you can do it, you should listen to Sidney Poitier. Look at that 1980 book. And he leaves, a, and here's the thing he predicted. This is why I'm going to end where we begin. This is what he predicted in 1980. So not even now, which you could say, okay, now you live to see. This is what he wrote in 1980. This is a quote. This is the big development, he said, on the horizon is the technology. Mm -hmm. He said tapes, discs, cables, satellites, scramblers. And he said, quote, numerous other as yet unannounced systems. He Look at us now. The you know, you projecting films coming out of narrative, documentaries. If y'all ain't signed up, we need the creatives. They, you know, you're racing them. It's over there, Carla. They collecting all these creatives. He says, black filmmakers, stay alert. Yes. Don't let the black, I mean, he says, don't let the man beat you on your home ground. If you do, the chances are you will find yourself locked out again. That was Sydney. That was Sydney Poitier in this life. He said, "Don't let them beat you on your own ground." That was it. <laughs> I feel like we're in that time, um, and it's not just Nubia narrative. It's as prevalent and pervasive. 
this is the time. And I, I said I wanted to shout out uh, our sister Tanya Pinkins, who uh, plays the mother of Mamie Till Mobley uh, in Mother of the Movement, uh, Women of the Movement. That's on ABC. It's a, a multi-part docu-series yes. based on the life of Emmett Till, and it is so masterful. And again, it's Black filmmakers. Marissa Joe uh, Sarar, I think that's her name, uh, yes. the executive producer, Gina Prince Botwood. You know, uh, we all know her from many different things, including girlfriends. I think uh, she also is yes. a producer. Will Smith is a producer, and and we're seeing what it looks like when black to to watch. I don't know if you've seen any of it, but I watched. Um, I I'm watched watch the whole thing, though. Yes. To see Emmett Till being born, to start the piece with his birth and the difficulty of his breech birth and how his mother hmm. the doctors, they want him to be institutionalized because he couldn't live on his own. And somehow this woman, Mamie Till Mobley, loved him into uh, teenage ship only to uh, have him beg to go down south. And uh, Glenn Turman plays Mose. Darhi. No way. Yes. I mean, you're going to see. It's incredibly. Oh, no, I can't. So, I'm Adrian, not Warren, Adrian Warren, she's. My God, um, I'm ready. She, you, 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 yeah. You need. I had to pause it. it. It's a lot, but they do all of the things, including we have to see Emmett Till's body in that in that um, of course, funeral yeah. home. Of course, we we. She takes us into that moment with Mamie, and uh, Fisher plays the man. You, we, we, we went through this. So I'm sitting yeah. here like, yeah. it's as if they were in class and they crafted this piece, scene by scene, and and it's. It looks like a governance structure um, series, and it and it feel it feels like the humanity of Emmett Till. We finally we get to see his personality, his character, his family, the the family interaction, and as they're you know it's not centering whiteness, and it's it's beautiful. Um, the only I would have a criticism, but they even bring humanity to Carolyn Bryant, which I was like, you know, but, no, that's okay. Yeah, but the, even the thing, thing I love about uh, something like that, and, I, and you're right, I'm going to have to take it in pieces because it's so emotional. I can hear it in your voice. I can feel it in your spirit. The thing that that makes me say that's fine with her is because it doesn't allow people to hide behind whiteness. You made a choice. You didn't have to do this. You're a human being. See, the thing about whiteness is its power often comes from making it the standard for humanity, but it's an artificial thing, as is blackness. But our culture is real. So, yeah, let her be human. That means because you as a human being are just effed up and you're still alive. You need to call and turn yourself in. But you ain't going to do that. Watching, watching uh, Adrian Warren's portrayal of Mamie Till Mobley and watching Ahmaud Arbery's mother Oh, you know, even I mean, she even brought in the toenails like she she and the sister who talked about his beautiful skin, you know, centered Ahmaud Arbery's humanity, Mamie Till Mobley refused to let people not see her son as a human being. And that is, uh, I think, you know, for all of us, they, they can't take that. We can't allow that to happen. So I, you know, I it's, it's funny you say that. It's funny you say that, uh, Karen. I know we won't, but I mean, I, I should mention this because I don't know if you've seen that. Have you seen that clip? It's around on YouTube somewhere where Denzel Washington is telling that story, the N word they couldn't kill. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. yeah. 
this reminds me of that. He said, I called Sandy Portier saying, man, look, the first couple of roles going to define you, bro. So listening to you talk about this. Oh, yeah. And, and also today, 1811, uh, on this day, kicked off the largest uprising uh, in America, uh, the, the a German Coast Revolt. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, that started today through the 10th, 1811, on uh, the Mississippi River, St. John the Baptist, St. Charles, Jefferson Parishes in Louisiana, an insurgency of enslaved uh, the largest in U.S. history, which I I never heard of until today. Somebody posted it. Oh, this is the one that they reenact. You know, they reenact this one in Louisiana. Do they? Yeah, they do, do a that. thing where they, they they march, and you see the the sisters with their heads, and they got the guns and the pikes, and they on horses. They got the flags. Yeah, they reenact. They reenact that. Yeah, because oh. you know the indigenous people were involved in it too. I mean, you. I mean, so yeah, that's. Oh yeah, that's that's one of the documentaries is gonna have to be made. Yes. Um, and all of that happened today, so I just thought that that was important. Yes, I shade. Um, oh, and we should have wished a happy belated Independence Day birthday, Haiti, January 1st, 1804. Okay. People reminded us that last week. So, oh, no, we should have mentioned that because we always, oh, yeah, anyway, yes, uh, thank you. This is this could go on for hours, obviously, uh, hours more, but um, no, no, this is good. I'm looking forward to uh, to Monday evening in office hours. Hey y'all, we got this. Tell your friends. We yeah. not playing. Uh, not only that, but you know, at some point uh, soon, this this live thing on YouTube no longer will be here live like it is uh, because yeah, we have a place where we're building. Um, so yeah. I just want to do this. Oh, Angus. Matter of fact, you got to speak. Is that hey look you can see can you see it while that move music coming on and you see the Atlanta skyline as they coming in that you know the soundtracks of these oh. I think Curtis Mayfield was a participant in the first one this let's do it again you think about the soundtrack this was all very deliberate City Press if I got if I got it because you're right I mean Mayfield of course with Gordon Parks with Superfly the Mac you know and then Portier gets his chance Mavis Staples yo Come on, let's do it again. Do it in the morning. <laughs> oh, let's do it in the morning. Right. Let's do I mean, Donnie Hathaway wrote the soundtrack for Come Black Charleston Blue. I mean, that whole album alone. Uh Glass Night in the Pips, Claudine. I mean, there's a whole <laughs> as you're talking about the you know, the thespians and their addiction and their their, their mm. all that filmmaking today, you know, the, the lost art of the soundtrack that goes with and it. And it becomes stitched into everything. It's not just about the great acting; it's all of it. No. The whole presentation. That's we exactly do all right. of the things. So why why shouldn't we? Let's do that's it. Exactly, that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Oh man, we had to do some more of that. Uh, I'll see everyone tomorrow. Maroon's Medicine Chest. Those of you in Nubia, Maroon. Where's my Sinatra. water? Almond. Oh. And yes, go get your water with your. No, I got uh, it. Decolonize your tongue. Yes. 
and uh, on Monday office hours with you, Dr. Carl. I'll see you not in the morning. We're not playing. This is material reality. Yes. I'll see you tomorrow night.